Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. So many familiar faces in the audience. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. We have an exciting agenda for you today. We will start with a little background on our company, followed by a tour. Then you will return here for a light lunch, followed by a discussion with our engaging management team. In a few moments, I will welcome to the stage our Chief Information Officer, Missy Young. I've had the privilege of working with Missy for more than 10 years, and I can tell you, you are about to meet one incredibly talented individual. Missy will provide us with an overview of SWITCH, after which we will break you into groups, take you on that tour, then return here for a quick lunch, followed by that engaging discussion with the management team. So now, without further ado, please put your hands together and welcome to the stage the incomparable Missy Young. Good morning. Hopefully you guys can all hear me in the back. Uh, welcome to SWITCH. Thank you all so much for coming out here. Uh, if this is your first time back to Las Vegas since the pandemic, please stay for a couple of extra days and spend lots of money. Las Vegas appreciates your business. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's my privilege to walk you through a general overview of the company and uh, what we do and how we do it and why we do it. So uh, after the tour, after the presentation, we'll break you up into groups and you'll go on the walking portion to see things up close. So one of the things that's most important to recognize as a differentiator for Switch is our CEO and founder, Rob Roy. Uh, Rob really is the driving factor behind all of our innovation and technology and all of our patents and patent pending claims that we have. Uh, he founded Switch back in the year 2000 and he is constantly innovating and so that's why Switch constantly stays so far out ahead of the rest of the industry. Get this mouse to go there. There we go. So our patent book is available on our website for review. Uh, you can read through it anytime you want. Uh, it was written by attorneys, so it might be a little dry. No offense to any attorneys in the room. Uh, but one of the main patents that we have is our T-SCIF, Thermal Separate Compartment in Facility. All of our clients go into a configuration just like this. And because of this patented invention, we can give our clients as much power per rack as they want because we can effectively cool every single kilowatt that they run in those racks. So this changes the game for a lot of our customers as to how they configure their data center. No longer do they have to keep all of the, the gears spread apart in the racks for airflow. Here they can fit all the racks full of gear top to bottom, go as dense vertically as they possibly can. We push the cold air down from above through those blue vents. The cold air gets pushed down because cold air falls. And then the hot air comes out of the back of the servers and goes up through that contained red heat shield into the fall ceiling and then right on out of the building. Cold air falls, hot air rises, so our patented inventions are working with those natural laws of airflow. So but because of this pressurized delivery of cold air and the removal of the hot air, the cold temperature of our data center will always be 68 to 72 degrees until the end of time, no matter what kind of power densities our customers are running. So we truly can deliver to our customers high densities of power and cooling at scale. And so our T-SCIFs work in conjunction with our patented air conditioning systems. These all sit outside of the facility. Uh, Rob said many years ago that, you know, weather changes all the time, so our air conditioning systems should be able to change with the weather. So uh, each one of these can be configured to use all four types of mechanical cooling. So each one can be configured to run DX, 
direct evaporative, indirect evaporative, or chilled water. And so our internal, uh, our, 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 excuse me, artificial intelligence software that we've created in-house called Living Data Center uh, will dynamically choose how to cool the facilities based on the weather. So here in Las Vegas, where we are today, for instance, the temperature here is actually 72 degrees or below 70% of the year. A lot of people think it's just blazing hot in Las Vegas all year long. It's definitely not the case. But so 70% of the year, our software is actually choosing outside air as the primary cooling method. So that also makes our facilities the most efficient large-scale data centers on Earth because we can cool using outside air 70% of the time while also still delivering some of the highest densities of power and cooling anywhere. And so because they all sit outside of the facility, we didn't sacrifice even one single square footage internally to do our cooling system. So you won't find internal crack units, computer room air conditioners anywhere inside the building. All of the cooling units sit outside. But that also very means, uh, that also very importantly means that we have no water in the data center. There's no need to have any internal water pipes running near our customers, hundreds of billions of dollars of high-tech equipment because all the cooling sits outside. And if you see that number 1,000 on each one of the units, as you go through the walking tour of the campus, you'll see different units with different numbers. So that number means, the 1,000 means that that particular air conditioning unit can cool 1,000 kilowatts of power by itself. So uh, you might see a 600, you might see a 1,200 or a 1,500. Rob designed these to work with different, uh, different levels of power and cooling that it can provide uh, so that it can suit whatever type of configurations we're trying to deliver for our clients. Behind that 1,000, though, is the DX section of the cooling. So DX cooling is, uh, it uses a refrigerant or a coolant like your car's air conditioning system does. That part of the air handler is powerful enough to cool the entire, to, to provide the entire load of cooling by itself. And so what that means is we have completely eliminated our dependence upon water. So if we lost water to the facilities for any reason, for any length of time, we could cool the entire site for a whole year straight without using additional water if we had to. And so some of my um, very geeky engineering friends like to say, yeah, but if you're cooling just using DX, you're less efficient because it takes more energy to run that. And I said, that's absolutely correct. But the point is we're still cooling. You know, if I give any of our customers the choice between efficiency or uptime, they will always choose uptime. Uptime is always the end goal. That's what Switch does. We, are, we build mission-critical data centers for our customers' crown jewel. The servers and the data that our customers run here is really their most important data, the stuff that can never be off. So while efficiency is wonderful and we always want to have efficiency, uptime is always the end goal. And Switch has a perfect record of uptime. Not one of our clients has ever experienced a nanosecond of an outage in any of our facilities throughout the entire history of the company since the day Rob founded it. Our power systems are also uniquely configured, so each facility's power is divided into three separate N plus two power systems. So each one of the three systems is color-coded, either red, blue, or gray, and every device in it is part of that system and color-coded to be part of that system, so that every engineer, every technician knows exactly which system they're touching. And actually, our electrical engineers have to pass a color blindness test in order to work here, right, because we need to make sure they can tell the difference between one of each of the three systems. So every single rack of gear in the building gets primary and failover power circuits. Those two circuits come from two of the three separate systems. So each rack is either getting red and blue power, red and gray power, or blue and gray power. As long as all the customers here is properly plugged in and using both sides, we guarantee 100% uptime in the contract. And that's exactly what we have been delivering and intend to deliver for the next decade. So uh, each system has its own generators, its own transformers, transfer switches, UPS battery backup systems, PDUs, RPPs, everything. 
and we configure each system up to 66% load. So if, God forbid, the red system went down, 33% tails over to the blue system, 33% tails over to the gray system. So this is a tri-redundant power system designed with delivering the most dependable mission-critical uptime on the planet. And this architecture allows our teams to do real maintenance. So we know we can do repairs or replacements or anything we need to do on any of these systems without ever interrupting service to a client. The power spine is important because this is how we provision and deliver thousands and thousands of power circuits over many, many years in a very organized fashion. So this is important to us because we have to know how we're going to deliver power to clients 10 or 20 years from now. And so why this is the case is because of how much power our facilities can deliver. So this building that you're sitting in, this is Las Vegas 7. This is our seventh out of 12 current running data centers here in the valley. And this building by itself can deliver up to 100 megawatts of power. So that's more power than Disneyland and Disney World just in this one building out of the 12 we have here in Vegas. So this building has been running for about 11 years. It's sold out from a floor space perspective. I don't have any racks to sell here, but we still have 30 more megawatts of power and cooling to go around. So not one of our customers who's been in this facility running for the past 11 years has been told, oh, sorry, you can't do that equipment refresh or shoot, we can't cool another kilowatt or any of those things. So we still have, and we may never get to 100 kilowatt, excuse me, 100 megawatts in this building. It just depends on how do the customers use the power and the cooling over the next several decades. But the point is, they still can. This is what it looks like inside of a sector before clients move into it. So if you see the red stripe on the ground, that's the hot aisle. So the cabinets go on either side and push that, cold, that hot air up through the hot aisle. The blue vents are where the cold air comes out. And yes, we color code the hot aisles red and the cold vents blue because Shortly after Rob invented the T-Skiff um, several years ago, the one of the first clients to move into it showed up and racked all the gear backwards. So the hot air was going to the cold aisle, and so we said, aha, we're going to need some visual aids. So that was what led us to start color coding things in the data center. But everything you see here is, is made out of solid concrete and steel. So we build everything from the ground up so that we know there's nothing flammable in the construction of our facilities. And this solid steel structure that you see holding up those, the red heat shield and the blue vents, all of the weight of that is distributed to a very thick concrete slab on grade floor that can support several thousand pounds per square foot. So there's also no weight restrictions for the customers because if you're going to allow them to do high density, they can fill those racks up so full that now the racks might weigh 5,000 pounds fully configured. That's something that's a huge challenge in any raised floor environment because those raised floors cannot handle the weight of a rack like that. So customers can be constricted in other data centers by power, by cooling, by the weight le limits for the rack, or all three. But here at Switch, the weight is not a problem because all of those racks are sitting solidly on that concrete slab floor. And then that entire steel structure that you see is connected all the way across each half million square foot facility. So it makes it a very stable structure as well. Oops, let's go back to the roof. Here we go. So also the roof is a patented invention of Rob's, and so this is called Switch Shield. So this is a dual roof system. So it's two roofs, and the outer roof is a solid steel, 200 mile per hour rated, unpenetrated, watertight, airtight roof. Nine feet beneath it is another solid steel, 200 mile per hour rated, unpenetrated, watertight, airtight roof. So in the worst weather, if the outer roof somehow started to get damaged, there's still another redundant roof protecting all of the clients beneath it. And as every homeowner knows, over time, all roofs need repairs. And so you can do whatever repairs you want on that outer roof without ever exposing the clients beneath it. So this is just another way to help protect our clients from the outside elements. So this is a virtual flyover of what most of our facilities look like. 
Uh, we've had people say, why do you build them long and narrow? We say, well, that's kind of what the parcels look like. So that's really, you know, we're fitting the, bu the buildings to match the parcels. Uh, but this configuration works for us very well. You can see those two roofs pulling back. And so at the top of the screen here, that's where all the air handlers go. And then at the bottom of the screen, that's where all the generators and the power systems are, the power rooms. And so we keep all of the air handlers completely physically separated from all of the power rooms and generators so that nothing that's going on with the power could ever interfere with the cooling. So those big four red rectangles, those are the sectors for client equipment, roughly 800 racks per sector. Uh, when we open up a building, we are filling up the first sector while the next sector is getting ready for occup occupation. Uh, right now, our biggest challenge has been getting the buildings built fast enough to handle the demand, which is a great problem to have, but, you know, still a challenge. Uh, but this is what it will look like someday with all of the air handlers plugged in. So all of Rob's designs are modular. He does not believe in build it and they will come. He's much more a fan of when they come, we'll build it. And so we let the clients decide how fast or how slow we build out a data center and how dense or how non-dense does each sector need to be. As customers' load increases, we add more air handlers, we add more power rooms, et cetera. So we, we definitely are a modular design and, and operated uh, site. Also in uh, 2017, Greenpeace named Switch the most sustainable tech company in the world. Uh, we were rated higher than everybody else, and this is because of our commitment to clean and renewable energy. So as of January 1, 2016, all of Switch's facilities have been truly powered by 100% clean and renewable energy. And this was due to a commitment that Rob made several years before that saying, you know, data centers, or excuse me, data runs the planet, but it shouldn't ruin the planet. There's really no reason why the entire internet cannot be powered sustainably if we, as leaders, all choose to make that a reality. And so uh, we fought a long battle to become uncoupled from uh, the local utility here and to become our own FERC-regulated power company so that we can now purchase directly from clean, and, from clean and renewable energy sources locally in every market in which we operate. And so that's what we do. Uh, we also put our money where our mouth is. So we operate Switch Station 1 and Switch Station 2 right outside of North Las Vegas here. That's 179 megawatts of power that is being generated there, put into the Las Vegas Valley. We also partnered with a company called Silver Bullet to significantly reduce our water consumption so that uh, in all of our sites, so now we recycle all the water 400% before we discard it. To date, we've saved about 155 million gallons of water so far. We also announced and are in plans to build right now Gigawatt Nevada. So this is 1,000 megawatts, an entire gigawatt of solar power that will be built and operated by Switch in the northern and southern parts of this state. We'll make Nevada one of the leaders in the world in clean energy, provide over 1,000 jobs, and the plant in northern Nevada will actually be the world's largest behind-the-meter solar project. We also have an audited Las Vegas campus average PUE of 1.28, uh, PUE being a measure of power usage effectiveness, how much power do you use for your machines, and how much additional power do you use for your servers. So one of our casino clients who used to own and operate their own data center, in that antiquated data center, for every one kilowatt of server power they ran, it cost them an additional three kilowatts of energy to cool it. So that would be a PUE of four, one for the server and three for the cooling. So that's a highly inefficient data center. But so by consolidating all of their gear into Switch, now that same server running that same kilowatt of power, it costs Switch, excuse me, it costs Switch 0 0.28 kilowatts to cool it. So less than a third of a kilowatt to cool the same server. So they massively increase their efficiency by coming here. Uh, we also have the world's only Tier 5 Platinum Data Centers, according to the uh, Data Center Standards Foundation, which was created by Rob and a few other industry experts. That will be coming out shortly. But we also did go through the certification process with the Uptime Institute for our Las Vegas 8 and 9 facilities. 
Uh, we achieved Tier 4 design, Tier 4 facility, and Tier 4 gold for operational excellence for both of those sites. And uh, we are definitely the only colocation provider in the world ever to have achieved Tier 4 gold uh, for two sites. Um, it's definitely unprecedented. We did that to help our small to medium-sized clients understand truly the excellence that SWIFT provides. We found that our largest clients are most definitely data center experts in their own right, but the small to medium-sized companies uh, might not, you know, the guy who's in charge of their data center might not necessarily understand electrical engineering or construction and so forth, and they look to these type of things as a validation of their choice. So that's one of the reasons why we went through the exercise. Uh, we also have our global network operations center, and so this room that you see here, there are multiple rooms like this, large and small, throughout all of our facilities. So we have engineers and technicians available 24-7 to assist our clients with any physical tasks that they need done. So we can do things anywhere from a simple reboot up to a complete physical hardware installation, depending on what the clients need. Uh, we stop there, though. We do not touch the data. We do not log into machines. We are not a managed services company, so we are not providing any data-related services to our clients, and our contract states that. Uh, Living Data Center is that software I was talking about. So there are 10 to 14,000 sensors in each facility, constantly looking at the temperature, the air quality, the humidity, the usage on the power circuits, the bandwidth, all of those things. And so customers can log in also and get a live version of everything that we see about their deployment. They can change these views to be historical, so they can see how is the usage trending on one particular power circuit or a group of power circuits. They can see how much bandwidth they're using, when they're spiking, what does their bill look like, et cetera. They can see the environmentals in their space. It gives them a very holistic view into everything that's happening at Switch. We also have uh, unparalleled physical security. So the reason why we have the type of security that we have is because of certain government clients that we support. So we have clients at the federal, state, and local levels uh, up to, and in fact, we will, we can build DCI-B69 tempestrated skips for top secret and key clearance projects for the federal government. I'm not saying we have any of those things, but we can build them because uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. But because of deployments like that, this is why we have the type of security that we do. So all of our officers are authorized to use deadly force to protect the site because of certain government clients that we have who could never be off, especially in the event of some sort of national emergency. So all of our clients benefit. Every one of our clients who is in the banking industry, the healthcare industry, the casino industry, any other, any industry, anywhere of any kind that gets, that is regulated or has to go through an audit, they know they are going to successfully pass their physical audit at SWITCH every single time. And in fact, we have a team within our security department that that's all they do is help our customers get through their audits. So we probably handle 20 to 30 audits every single month for our customer base. Uh, we also have our own fire brigade, so this is a group of trained firefighters on staff. We have our own fleet of fire trucks, our own Triple K generator firefighting units. We have chemical suits, turnout gear, hundreds of meals stored on site. We truly do have the ability to shelter in place without assistance from the outside world. The reason why is because, again, of those deployments that could never be off, especially in the event of some sort of national emergency. We truly are designing, building, and operating data centers for the most important, the most mission-critical data. That is, that is what we do. So we have to think of any and all contingencies, and we have huge training books and playbooks for how to handle any type of contingency. I always say that uh, in a crisis, you don't rise to the occasion, you default to your training. And so we do tons of training with security in our staff. We even do active shooter training. We are prepared for pretty much any contingency that could happen. We offer our Tier 5 Platinum colocation at prices that can match our competitors' Tier 2 pricing 100% of the time. 
a lot of people assume that because Switch builds and operates the best data centers in the world that we must therefore be the most expensive, and that's actually not true at all. We can be extremely competitive on pricing. And why is this possible? Well, you know, Rob invents everything, we patent everything, and now we actually OEM 80% of all the components that go into the construction of our facilities. And a while ago, Rob said, you know what, I want to make sure that the parts last a long time. Because a lot of parts out there, when you're buying other products off the shelf and you have to pay a third-party maintenance contract, those parts are actually engineered to fail after a certain amount of time. If you look at a car dealership, the most profitable part of the car dealership are the maintenance phase. Why? Because we all have to bring our cars in for maintenance because those parts are engineered to fail after time. So Rob said, I want to make sure that all of our parts have a 50-year mean time between failures. So not only are we engineering all the parts and all the components that we make for our facilities to last, they need a lot less maintenance, and therefore the cost of that maintenance are almost none, and we're not paying anybody else third-party maintenance fees on the things that we OEM. So our costs to operate are therefore lower. And there's another big reason why our costs are lower, and which I'll get into in just a bit. These are the line of products that we OEM, and all of this is on our website if you want to see that. Um, we can also certainly get you more data on any of those things if anyone needs it. These are the five Switch Prime campuses. So you are sitting here in the Las Vegas campus, which we call the core campus. This is where we started. And we have about 3 million, just under 3 million square feet of data center space here. And we are actively building uh, the next two buildings. The first one is going to open uh, late Q1 of next year. And our customers here have significant sales and property tax advantages. They only pay 2% of taxes on the gear, and that 2% goes to education. Uh, which is great and definitely an advantage for our customers who are leaving California seeking a better climate to run their data. Up in northern Nevada, we have what we call the Citadel Campus. This is the first building that we built there, uh, which is actually just about sold out, and so we are actively building the next two buildings there. What these images don't show you are all the wild horses in that area. It's really beautiful if you ever get to go. They are wild. Please do not pet them. Uh, but this is a rendering of what that campus will look like over time. So a little over 7 million square feet of data center space will be available. This building in the lower left-hand corner behind me, that's the one that's almost sold out. That is 1.3 million square feet just by itself. It is the world's largest data center. And uh, we definitely need more buildings up there because uh, that building sold out. Uh, so anyway, it's currently under construction. And same tax advantages apply up there. So in Grand Rapids, you know, we were looking for a site close to the East Coast, and then Hurricane Sandy happened and sort of changed the way a lot of our customers felt about the safety of that coastline. So we moved our search a little bit inland, and then uh, we found this building for sale, a 660,000 square foot concrete and steel pyramid that was originally built and designed by Steelcase, if you remember that company. And so Steelcase is still in still operation right down the street, but we call this the Jurassic Park of buildings. They spared no expense. It is a solid fortress of concrete and steel. And so we acquired it, and Rob retrofitted the entire uh, largest floor on the bottom into a data center. And it also has a so-called pendulum that swings from the top of the pyramid to the lobby floor with the gravitational pull of the earth. It's the coolest thing ever. Uh, but it is a really beautiful building if you ever get a chance to go there. And that building is sold out, and so uh, our customers there get 0% property tax and sales tax on the gear. Uh, the state of Michigan actually created a tax renaissance zone around our property, and we hope to uh, begin building on the next facility there as soon as we line up the anchor tenant for that building. But we do own the land around the pyramid to build more data centers there. No, it will not be another pyramid. That one is one and done. It will look just like the buildings that you see here in Vegas and Atlanta and Reno. 
And then in Atlanta, that first building there is almost sold out, and so we are actively building the next two buildings there. Um, that building sold out really, really fast. Atlanta is a great market to be in, uh, very excited to be there, and the Georgia legislature gave our customers zero sales and use tax on the gear in our, in our campuses there too. So uh, now in Round Rock, we just announced that we're going to be building data centers at Dell's headquarters on land that we purchased there. So these are two of our facilities that will be on either side of Dell's main building there. So very exciting. Uh, we have um, quite a few potential opportunities that we'll be going into those buildings, signed for before we even open up. Uh, so that, that, those buildings are going to be very exciting. And the campus will actually look like this. So you can see those five buildings there that we will be building at the Dell's headquarters in Round Rock, Texas. That campus will be called The Rock. So if I can actually get The Rock to announce The Rock, that would be amazing. That's a, that's a goal. So um, that's the five switch primes. Each location was chosen for its availability of clean and renewable energy from local sources, uh, abundance of connectivity, and also uh, low or no risk of natural disasters. We're very intentional about choosing places that are as safe as they possibly can be so that our customers have that peace of mind. Uh, we also can build data centers for smaller clients who want their own, or not smaller clients, smaller data centers for clients who want their own data centers. And so uh, we have potential opportunities to do that as well. One of the things I want to talk to you about is the connectivity, because that's a big part of the Switch story, and those of you who know us already know, probably know this story. I know Colby can probably tell it in his sleep. Um, but so what happened back in, uh, right after Rob founded Switch was he founded Switch over on this area of Las Vegas that had a ton of connectivity building into it. And the reason why so many carriers were building into this one corner of Las Vegas was because that was where the Enron Broadband Services Gateway Data Center had been constructed. So Enron at the time had this idea, this, this division within Enron, that Blockbuster was going to go digital. They were 100% correct, right, because that's what we're doing now. We're streaming all of our content online. But at the time, it was a pretty revolutionary thought. People couldn't see how that was going to happen. But they were sure that content was going to go digital, and so they built one data center where all of the carriers could interconnect and they planned to sort of use Enron's uh, energy trading algorithms to trade bandwidth and peering. So they built this one data center in Las Vegas, and they wanted to build it in Silicon Valley, but their insurance folks said, absolutely not. We can't allow you to build something this unique in a place that is so prone to natural disasters. So they said, okay, well, where will you let us put it? And so they said, well, let's do a study. And the study determined that Southern Nevada is actually the lowest risk of any natural disasters of anywhere in the U.S. There's actually zero recorded history of any damaging natural disaster ever to have struck this city. And I've had people say, well, what about gambling? And I go, well, that's not natural. If that happens to you, you did it. Uh, so Enron built the data center here and invited all of the carriers to participate. So this was during the dot-com days when Enron was a $60 billion company that could do no wrong as far as we all knew. And at the same time, all the carriers were caught up in the dot-com heyday, spending billions of dollars building out their networks without a single thought for tomorrow. And so 27 of these national carriers jumped on the Enron bandwagon and physically extended all their national backbones right into that site. Shortly afterwards, Enron imploded. They never got to use what they created here. But Rob had started Switch just a half a block away already because he knew he needed to be where all the carriers were, and he had started Switch by himself with his own money and uh, said, well, if I'm going to start a data center company, I need to be close to all the connectivity. But he couldn't find out what the Enron site was. So after Enron imploded and that site went up for auction, Rob was the only one who showed up to bid on it, and he ended up walking away with it for just under a million dollars. So it's a pretty cool story. But Rob also had a very different vision for what to do with this. So he said, you know, let's, let's build something unique. He told all of, the, all of the customers, which was a small group of them at the time, 
you know, if we pool our resources together and buy connectivity as one, we'll have a lot more buying power than if each of you just buy on your own in, in a silo. And they saw the wisdom of that, and so he created the, a cooperative called Switch Connect. And today, that has become the world's most powerful telecom auditing and purchasing cooperative. So right now, we represent almost $7 trillion of market cap in this cooperative with our customers. And so our customer list is vast. We have over 1,300 companies, some of the largest names in the world. And altogether, they can buy connectivity through this cooperative as one single entity. And so this results in drastically reduced pricing on telecom for our clients all over the globe. It can be for anything they order from a carrier at any location that they're in, anywhere in, in any country. So they can run this through the buying power of the cooperative, have us do an audit and see, okay, here's what we think is possible. And so in many cases, we're able to reduce our clients' telecom spend by anywhere from 30 to 50%. It's incredible, especially for our small to medium-sized clients who would never have any buying power of their own. But now they have the same buying power as all of these companies combined. So these are just some of the carriers that are in the mix. Uh, they're all over the world, and so we can negotiate with our, uh, for our customers on their behalf with any of these carriers. And uh, we have Switch Superloop, which connects our, top, our campus in Nevada, excuse me, in Reno with Vegas. And so we have two diverse paths that connect customers in Vegas to their primary or redundant deployments in northern Nevada. So we have a lot of customers leaving California who do this. They want to have primary and redundant data center deployments but get out of the natural disaster areas and, you know, the tax disaster that California has become into a much safer, uh, much more financially attractive state. So how does this affect our clients? So we're just going to do one quick case study. So Amgen, Fortune 100 biopharmaceutical company, um, they became a client of Switch a few years back, but they had us do this telecom audit for them. So using the buying power of the cooperative, we were able to reprice their 10, 10 gig circuits that connect all of their data centers together. We're just one of their data centers. Uh, we also repriced their global MPLS network, which is 162 circuits, and we increased the capacity there by 58%, so it made their network have much more throughput. And we repriced all of their global internet services. This means all of the internet connectivity at all of their locations around the world, and we were able to increase the capacity there by 242%. All in all, we lowered Amgen's monthly telecom bill by over half a million dollars a month. And that's more than they pay us for the data center project. And so we were able to zero out their costs of their entire data center project at Switch. So truly, we are offering our customers the best product at the best prices in the safest places in the country. And so this is what our customers come to expect from us. And so there's truly no other data centers in the world who, who have facilities that can do what ours can do at scale, operating on 100% clean and renewable energy, and then also offering to hopefully maybe save them more than they spend. So, uh, and with 100% uptime. So the, the combination of all of those things is really incomparable. So we also have quite a few cloud comp uh, companies running with us. Cloud computing providers know that their cloud is only as resilient as the data center in which it operates. And so we have quite a few cloud computing companies, large and small, and you can see their logos on our website, but they rely heavily on the uptime that Switch provides, and they know that they can offer their clients a rock-solid SLA because they're running on our rock-solid SLA. We also provide a a dedicated denial of service solution to help our clients mitigate DDoS attacks, which have become ever prevalent, uh, especially with our video game customers. I think video game players are probably the most unforgiving clients on the internet. Uh, but we also have smaller clients, you know, who uh, might get affected by a DDoS attack, and they don't necessarily have the money or the expertise in-house to counteract something like that. 
But here, because so many clients are sharing in the cost of this, this now becomes affordable for everyone. You know, those are the economies of hyperscale. You know, when hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies come together in one place and start doing things as one, really cool stuff starts to become possible for everyone. So also because of that, we have also created the most uh, robust and resilient blended internet bandwidth product in the world. And so what I mean by that is these are all four of our existing campuses. Round Rock will be added in here once we get that network built. But let's click on the Las Vegas campus, for instance. So each client can, I'm just going to click over there, each client can redundantly connect into two separate autonomous systems. And each autonomous system has completely diverse carriers in each mix. So, uh, and each campus, if you can see those red and black lines extending out each side, each campus is redundantly connected by a mesh network to every other campus. So the ability for this network to be taken down is, I want to say, practically impossible. But also the amount of bandwidth that we buy is massive. If you think about all the companies that we represent, you know, we buy massive amounts of internet bandwidth all over the world. And so every one of our clients who connects into this network, they get access to all of these carriers through all of the campuses for less than it would cost them if they ordered it themselves through one provider. And so again, those economies of hyperscale. When thousands of companies come together, you can do really, really cool stuff uh, that wouldn't be possible if you were doing it on your own. So truth in technology is our motto. Rob always says, the product should be so amazing, nothing more than the truth is necessary. So let's just build the world's best product and let it speak for itself. And so that's what we do. We just go out there and show everybody how it works and then let them decide. This is a no-pressure sales pitch ever. Uh, and even without it being a no-pressure sales pitch, we still are barely able to get the buildings built in time to handle the demand, which is great. Uh, we also have lots of testimonials on our website, so if you want to feel really warm and fuzzy about Switch tonight before you go to bed, I highly suggest you read through them. They always make me happy, that's for sure. Uh, but we always say if you're going to walk away remembering anything, let it be these five things. Lower no sales tax on the equipment in our facilities and all of our campuses. 100% sustainable power running every one of our facilities. All of our customers get all the renewable energy credits for all the power they consume. So they can truly show their customers and their investors that they really are running on a zero carbon footprint at switch. It becomes a big part of their ESG reporting. Uh, world's highest rated data centers, according to the Uptime Institute, according to our customers, according to everyone. One of a kind telecom pricing that could potentially save our customers more than they spend. And the economies of exascale, hyperscale, when thousands of companies come together to do things as one amazing things start to become possible for every single client that they might not have been able to do by themselves. We believe no other data center solutions in the world can match the combined technology attributes of the Switch ecosystem. And then for all of the, uh, actually let me show you these, so I can't take you, we won't be able to take you inside any live client deployments today, but I can show you a gallery of some photos of some of our customers. And you'll notice as you go through these that our clients really do not have to, they do not waste a single rack unit of space. They don't have to. You know, these are some uh, 35 kW racks all packed next to each other. And you might hear some data center companies go, oh, we can do high density too. What they mean is this rack can be high density and all these other racks have to be low density in order to compensate for all the cooling this one is consuming. Here at Switch, when you walk the halls, you're going to see high density at scale. And you'll feel that the temperature in the room never changes. And everything that you see here is running on 100% clean and renewable energy. And we have customers with all types of equipment. We've never told a customer, no, you can't bring that in. Uh, in fact, one of our customers years ago brought in a 1984 cream-colored AS400. That thing looks like the Whopper from War Games, and it is still here, still running. They're terrified it's going to shut off because they don't know how to fix it if it does. So we tucked it away in a corner somewhere where no one can see it, but it's still there. 
But so all different types of data, all different types of gear. We just need to know if it's not a standard type of equipment, where does the heat come out so that we can architect around it. And so that's what we do. Karma is Rob's personal and business philosophy. He strongly believes that if you put good in, you'll get good back. And so that's what we're charged to do with every day is just do the right thing. Life is too short for us not to sleep well at night about the decisions that we made at work today. So let's just do the right thing in every situation, and it will all work out. And that's been absolutely true. I've been at this company now for 17 years almost, and I have watched Rob do the right thing in every single situation and uh, created a fantastic work environment for all of us. And so it's a, it's a real um, privilege to be on his team. And then for all the success that we have, we give back. And so these are just some of the organizations that we support. And a lot of us executives sit on the various boards of these organizations to sort of help propel them forward. FIRST Robotics is one of the most fun things that we're involved in. If you guys have kids that aren't involved in FIRST Robotics yet, I, I happily recommend that you get them involved. Uh, it's a fantastic program uh, that, that really helps kids find out that they, they can do technology, they can do engineering, they can do programming, uh, all at the high school and middle school level. So that is the general overview of SWITCH. And so what we're going to do now is break you into groups so that you can go on your walking tours. You are uh, welcome to leave everything here. Uh, we will be coming back to this room, and we will have lunch after the walking portion of the tour. And you can see these four beautiful ladies on the screen behind me. Each one of you... On of Living Data Center. Living Data Center is our artificial intelligence software that is constantly monitoring the thousands and thousands of sensors that are spread throughout our data centers. Living Data Center will notice when there's an anomaly and it will react and notify us at the same time. So let's say someone is working here in this tea skip and someone props the hot aisle door open. Hot air is now coming into the cold room. So let's see what Living Data Center will do about that. 
So for a demonstration, I'm going to open this wrap, and I'm going to wrap my hands around this sensor. This sensor is going to start to heat up, and so that vent up above is going to open and start pushing cold air into this room to keep it at the right temperature, while at the same time notifying the network operation center that something's happening here and people need to come down and intervene and find out what's happening. So Living Data Center will keep the room cold while notifying us so that we can have human intervention. The Living Data Center helps us constantly react and adjust to whatever might be going on in our facilities to deliver the most well-maintained, perfect temperature data centers on the planet. been running in this T-skiff since this building opened about 12 years ago. This client has been through three different equipment refreshes, and every time they have installed more power and more power and more power. This building can still deliver 30 more megawatts of power and cooling over the next several years. So none of these clients have been told we're out of power or we're out of cooling. Every single client in here can continue to embrace the next generation of technology as it comes out. And so the cold air comes down from up above. It goes through all the machines. The hot air gets exhausted out the back and into the red heat shield and then pulled up through that red heat shield into the fall ceiling and then right on out of the building. So we never allow that hot air to mix back into the cold room. So as we walk through, this temperature is always going to remain a steady 68 to 72 degrees until the end of time. So customers can come in here and run for many, many, many years without any hot spots, without any danger of overheating, with perfect uninterrupted uptime forever. Standing inside a small room built on the side of one of our proprietary air handlers. Each one of these air handlers sits outside of the data center. So if we open up this door, you can look inside and you can see the filter wall here. The filters are about a foot and a half deep. They are MERS 16 filters. These are the filters used in surgical rooms and hospitals. And we change the filters whenever Living Data Center tells us, hey, static pressure is starting to change on air handler number five. It's time to change the filters. So Living Data Center very intelligently tells us when it needs something. Uh, and these air handlers are all plugged into the outside of the building. Each air handler is capable of being configured with all four types of mechanical cooling. So each one can be configured with DX, direct evaporative, indirect evaporative, and chilled water. And then here in Las Vegas, for instance, because the weather is so nice, 70% of the time our temperature here is 72 degrees or below, our air handlers are actually using outside air 70% of the time to cool the facilities based on Living Data Center's calculations. So let's say the air outside is about 100 degrees. Okay, Living Data Center at that point might choose to use a combination of inside air and outside air with some of the mechanical cooling in order to cool the facility. Or let's say the air outside is 20 degrees. It's in the middle of the night in the wintertime. That's too cold for the data center, so Living Data Center will take some of the exhausting hot air from the facility and some of that cold outside air and blend the two together in order to achieve the correct temperature in the most efficient manner possible. So if we come on down this way, you could look in here, you'll see the fan wall, and there are 16 variable frequency drive fans in there. Four of those fans could fail, but before you would even need to replace one fan. 
So the fan wall itself is N plus 4. There's also another wall of fans up above pulling that hot air out. So these fans push the cold air in, those fans pull that hot air out. So also each fan is another patented invention of Rodroy. It's called the Rotofly. So if you look up there, you can see a little bit about the Rotofly. What it basically means is that each fan is spinning with weight attached to it. So just for demonstration purposes, we have a wheel on the wall here. If you give that wheel a small spin for me. So that wheel has 110 pounds of weight on it. Because of the weight, the wheel will not stop spinning for roughly the next 10 minutes. But the fans and the air handler are spinning with the weight at about 5,000 RPMs. So if one of the fans or somehow all of the fans lost power, those fans won't stop spinning for nearly an hour. So it gives our engineers a tremendous buffer of time to fix anything that might happen. We are all focused on efficiency here, but mission critical uptime is always the number one goal. And as I said previously, Switch has a perfect uptime record. This is high density at scale. All of these cabinets are at 28 kW, 35 kW, and even higher per rack. And so we are powering all of this on 100% clean energy and giving it 68 to 72 degree air all the time, no hot spots, with 100% perfect uptime all the time. So this is why clients that need high density come to switch, because they know that not only can they do high density deployments like this at scale, but they're going to reduce their carbon footprint in the process, and they can rely on 100% uptime. through the power spine and here's where you'll see the power room. This right here is the gray power room and it has its own transformers, transfer switches and UPS battery backup system and further on down we'll see the blue and the red. Each of these power systems is in its own room which is separated by concrete fireproof walls. That way if something happens to the gray power system it won't touch the blue or the red. This is what it means to build a mission critical data center. Most companies have their own enterprise data centers in retrofitted warehouses or office buildings that were not purpose-built as a mission-critical data center. So as they become more and more reliant on their technology to stay on all the time, they are looking for solutions like Switch that can deliver that mission-critical uptime. plenum above the data center floor. You can see above this particular sector, it's 107 degrees in here. So this is where all the hot air is coming up through the heat shield, and then it is evacuated on that side by the air handlers. So the hot air comes up and out, 
the air handlers pull it out of the data center and do not recirculate it back into the cold room. So this is where all that hot air goes and we keep it always away from the gear.
program is about to begin momentarily. Please take your seats and silence all mobile devices. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Switch's 2021 Investor Day. Today's presentation may include forward-looking statements, including references to expectations and projections of future events or market conditions. Actual results may differ materially from those expressed in our forward-looking statements, which are subject to certain risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. Our statements are made as of today, and we assume no obligation to update our disclosures. We describe some of these risks in our SEC filings, specifically our Form 10-K in the section entitled Risk Factors. In addition, today's presentation includes discussion of non-GAAP financial measures, which should not be considered in isolation from or as a substitute for financial information prepared in accordance with GAAP. Please refer to our Investor Day presentation materials for further information including a reconciliation of non-GAAP measures. Our presentation materials and a recording of today's webcast will be made available on our investor website at investors.switch.com.
Switch President Thomas Morton. Good afternoon and welcome to Switch's Investor Day 2021. Thank you for joining us today. For those that have made the journey to be with us in person, thank you for, those after, for that effort. And for those of you that are joining us online, thank you for taking the time to learn more about our company. We have an exciting agenda for you today. We will start with me providing a little bit of a background on where Switch came from so that we can better understand where Switch is headed. Then we will hear from our Chief Information Officer, Missy Young, who will share with us a little bit about some of our sales strategies for both our telecommunications and our co-location products. Next, we will hear from Jonathan King, who will share with us some market trends and switches attempts or efforts to capitalize upon them. After a short break, we will then hear from our Chief Financial Officer, Gabe Knock. Gabe will share with us some metrics of financial abilities and capabilities of Switch, as well as an update on our reconversion status. And then finally, we will hear from the visionary founder of our company, Rob Roy, who will share with us a little bit about the technical innovations in our industry, in Switch, and how Switch will lead us into the sustainable progress in this connected world. We're going to throw a lot of data at you today, but let me talk about a couple of things first that are important to where we are going. There are five key takeaways today. The first takeaway is the fact that Switch builds the best multi-tenant data center facilities on the planet, full stop. Secondly, Switch's telecom cooperative is an incredibly powerful item for both our customers and for our company. Third, Switch is a recognized leader in sustainability and ESG. And fourth, Swish provides the foregoing three things while giving our stakeholders the highest industry growth rate as well as return on invested capital. And fifth, Switch has decided to convert to a REIT and we intend to do that conversion on January 1, 2023. Each of these items makes Switch a unique offering. And we understand that the COVID-19 pandemic has propelled some of our customers 
into the future at an accelerated rate. We will share with you today how we have assisted some of those customers in that progression and in that transition period. The future is now. But before we talk about the future, let's just take a moment and talk about the past. How did Switch get to where it is? Switch was founded in the year 2000 by Rob Roy, who came to Las Vegas with nothing more than the backpack on his back and a dream in his head. He founded our East Campus, which still exists today and is fully operational. It was a humble beginning to what has become a national platform. In 2002, Rob had the foresight to purchase the Enron Telecommunications Hub. He was the sole bidder in the bankruptcy court for this asset, and he paid less than a million dollars for it. This telecommunications hub became the foundation for what we know as the core telecommunications cooperative today. In 2008, we built our very first SuperNAP. In fact, that's the building we're in today. This building, built on a modularly optimized design, gave the resiliency and the repeatability that we could use to build every building afterwards. And it was this building that created the next steps that we would create as we evolved our platform across the United States. And speaking of moving our platform, in 2016, 15, excuse me, 2015, Rob Roy bought the Citadel campus. Now, currently, that purchase sounds like it was an easy decision with neighbors like Google, Tesla, PayPal, and others, FedEx, and Apple. However, at the time, what Rob saw was a large swath of land, robust telecommunications, renewable energy that was available, and a strategic location. It was on this campus, this 2,000 acres that he purchased, that he was to build the largest data center ecosystem in the world. In 2016, Switch went green. We became 100% green on this day. Until this day of 2021, we have remained 100% green, and it is a pledge that we will continue on to the future in all of our campuses. In 2016, we opened the Citadel campus. The first building on the Citadel campus is 1.3 million square feet. And that building is nearly sold out. And we have commenced construction on our next two facilities on that campus. In 2017, we purchased the iconic Steelcase Pyramid. This 650,000 square foot building is a virtual fortress of concrete and steel. We took the existing data center, raised it to our tier elite threshold, expanded it, and now that pyramid serves as the anchor for that campus. In 2017, riding 17 years of growth, Switch went IPO, and we listed on the New York Stock Exchange. 
in 2018, we pledged Gigawatt Nevada. This is our endeavor to build a full gigawatt of solar power that is renewable, local, sustainable energy. In 2020, 2020, we opened up the Keep Campus. The Keep Campus is in Atlanta, Georgia. We opened that campus with a building that was 310 megawatts, 310,000 square feet and 35 megawatts of power. One year after opening that facility, it is over 80% full. And we are constructing the next two facilities on that campus. In 2021, we opened up our fifth prime, The Rock. The Rock started with our purchase of the Data Foundry asset in Austin, Texas, and simultaneously, we purchased a large amount of land on the Dell Global Campus, also in Austin, Texas. Now we have two locations there, one in Austin and one in Houston, and we are currently building two data centers on the Dell campus. Value, demand, and loyalty. These are three attributes of a high-quality product. And the definition of a high-quality product is the value exceeds the price. The demand exceeds the supply. And once you have a customer, you have that customer forever. We do not desire to build a commodity product. A commodity product is one whose purchase decision is made solely based on price. Our products are premium products that command a reasonable price and once we have a customer, that customer stays with us. The average customer life inside of Switch is currently eight years. And that number keeps growing with each extra year. But in addition to the quality product, we also provide our customers with a tremendous total cost of ownership advantage. By giving them very high densities that they can run their cabinets in, they save money not only in shrinking their footprint, as Missy explained earlier, but also in saving money on the installation costs. Their gear runs more efficiently, using less power and getting more production. We provide 100% green power at a reasonable cost, and we offer the Telecommunications Core Cooperative, which saves our customers between 30 and 50% on, our on their telecommunications bills. We know this is effective, because more than 80% of our customers are participating in the core cooperative and more are joining every day. Sometimes we get asked, if you build the best data centers on the planet, why not just build them everywhere? And that's an easy answer. Because we are very selective about where we establish our prime. We look for locations where there is a large amount of land, and we currently hold over thousands of acres of land. We also look for places where there is renewable energy in abundance. We look for places where there is a low tax environment, large amounts of connectivity, and a tremendous amount of ability 
continue to proliferate and build in that location with very little environmental risk. By concentrating on building in just the right location, we can turn our attention to building the best data centers in that location. That gives our customers confidence not only in the facilities that we're building, but in the environs in which those facilities operate. Let's talk now about some of our facilities and our campuses. The core campus is currently 2.3 million square feet and 315 megawatts of power. In the future, we anticipate this campus will be over 4 million square feet and nearly half a gigawatt of power. Sometimes people have trouble getting perspective on those numbers. Let me look at this slide. This slide shows you that our core campus is the largest campus of any data center company except DLR's campus in Nova. And that is in both in terms of revenue as well as in terms of megawatts available. The Citadel campus. This campus currently sits at 1.3 million square feet and 130 megawatts of power. At currently planned full build, it will be over 7 million square feet and 650 megawatts of power. Compare this, combined with core, to any other deployment on the West Coast. Switch has the most square footage and the most megawatts of any other provider on the West Coast and nearly twice that of all of DLR's campus combined. The Pyramid Campus currently sits at 650,000 square feet, 20 to 40 megawatts of power. At full build, we expect this campus to be 1.6 million square feet and over 110 megawatts of power. The Keith Campus, 310,000 square feet, sold out over 80% in just one year. 35 megawatts of power. We expect that facility or this campus to be over 110 megawatts, 110,000, 1.1 million square feet, and 115 megawatts of power. The Keep. Keep is currently 430,000 square feet and 20 to 40 megawatts of power. Once built out, we expect it to be nearly 2 million square feet and 185 megawatts of power capacity. When we went public, there were some analysts and some people that had concerns about our concentration of revenue and our geographic concentration. Now, four years after going IPO, we have five campuses in seven cities. The core campus, which on IPO represented 82% of our revenue, now represents just 63% of our revenue. And that's not just because the core campus isn't doing well. It is doing extremely well. It is growing. It is the largest concentration of our customers. And our current customers generate 60 to 70% of our annual growth 
every single year. The fact is that the other campuses are growing even faster. And as we build more square footage on all of our campuses, we expect this trend to continue. Additionally, as we've shared on our earnings calls, the number of customers that are cross-pollinating or multi-homing in various campuses continues to expand. And we expect this trend to also continue. Let's talk about ESG. We are 100% renewable and have been since 2016. We have zero scope to emissions. And we have since 2016. We generate just 9.5 metric tons of CO2 per million, do million dollars of revenue. By far the lowest in the industry. And we use 100% recycled water wherever possible. In terms of social, our chief information officer, chief construction officer, chief operating officer, and chief marketing officer are all female. In fact, over 40% of our workforce is ethnically diverse. And Switch pays for 100% of the medical insurance premiums for 100% of our team. Governance. One-third of our board is female. Seven out of nine of our directors are fully independent. And our board maintains close oversight on all of our ESG initiatives. The next area of ESG that is important to everybody and is of growing importance is water. And we are pleased to report that even our blue is green. Using proprietary technologies spearheaded by Rob Roy, we are able to reuse our water over seven times. This has allowed us to save 155 million gallons of water in just the past three years. Behind me, there are a series of accolades that Switch has received from third parties regarding our ESG achievements. We look forward to adding to this board over time. It is something that we think is very important to our company and is obviously of growing importance to our customers. Thank you for spending a little time with me today, allowing me to tell you a little bit about the history of Switch. And now I'd like to bring to the stage our Chief Information Officer, Missy Young. You guys already heard from me today, so I'm not going to take up too much of your time. Uh, what I want to do is talk a little bit about why customers choose us. So uh, obviously you've heard a lot of reasons, but I want to focus on some specific examples. So Switch is well known in the industry for our ability to deliver high-density power and cooling at scale like no one else can. But how does this really translate into a specific customer use case? So uh, one of our casino clients used to own and operate their own data center in Memphis. We talked about them a little bit earlier with their PUE. 
but their gear used to operate in a 45,000 square foot raised floor data center. So this would be your plain vanilla, typical raised floor data center with crack units and a generator out back. They had so many cooling challenges trying to cool that room that they were leaving about this much empty space between each server in the rack. So you'd have a server, you'd have empty space, a server, empty space, and so on. So all of their equipment was spread out over 45,000 square feet. They configured it this way so that they could try to keep air flowing around the machines to try to keep the temperature down. Because if you let the temperature heat up, if the room gets too hot, the servers can overheat and then you have downtime and that's no good. So they found us and they were able to consolidate all of their equipment into switch. So they moved from a 45,000 square foot space, they forklifted every single device out of that data center and closed it down and moved it all into a 2,800 square foot space here in this building. So they went from 45,000 square feet to 2,800 square feet. That's about 1 16th of the footprint that they previously were consuming and paying for. So by consolidating into a higher density space, by going dense vertically in the racks, by not leaving any empty spaces in the racks because they don't have to here, they were able to start paying now for 1 16th of the footprint they were previously paying for. And so for us, you know, this ability to do high-density power and cooling at scale also allows us to put a lot more clients into our facilities So because we don't have to worry about spreading them all out. These are just some of our uh, over 1,300 clients. Uh, there's a longer list on our website if you'd like to browse through it. These are clients who uh, uh, have been with Switch for, for some time, or some of them are brand new, but most of them have been with us. And some of them are spread out over multiple facilities or multiple campuses. Um, but these clients are truly using us for the crown jewels of their data. What our clients put here at Switch is the data that can never be off, the stuff that is truly mission critical for them. They might also be using cloud. They might also have their own corporate data centers. They might also use other data center companies. Uh, but the point is what they put here with us typically is whatever is most important to them. Hulu, for instance. Uh, Hulu streams content to about 42 million paid subscribers, and that number grows every day. Hulu is highly dependent on mission-critical 100% uptime. They can't go down. Imagine if Hulu had an, had an outage during the season finale of A Handmaid's Tale. That would be really bad for their brand and also potentially negatively impactful to their bottom line. They cannot risk that. They have to have data centers that can stay on all the time. If you look at where data centers were, you know, 20 years ago, they weren't necessarily that critical, that mission critical to the performance of a company. But today, the performance of a data center truly is critical to a business's viability in the world, to their products and services that they sell. Because every company out there now is a technology company, no matter what industry that they're in. And every single company out there now is depending on uptime in one shape or another. But what's also important to Hulu, other than the 100% uptime and massive amounts of bandwidth to stream this content, is sustainability. Hulu has always had a large focus on sustainability, and so that was another reason that they chose Switch, so that they could then show their customers, their investors, that they truly are running on a zero-carbon footprint by moving a lot of their servers to Switch. They are well aware that every time one of their subscribers views some of their content on their device at home or wherever, there's a, there's a carbon footprint that comes with that. And so by running a large bulk of their servers here, they can offset that. They can offset that carbon footprint by being able to run on 100% clean and renewable energy. Amgen is a Fortune 100 biopharmaceutical company that depends on switch for uptime. 
And Amgen made it very clear to us how important this is to them when they brought a patient out to talk to us about how their life, their life had been changed for the better by the drugs that Amgen had developed for rheumatoid arthritis. And Amgen said, switch, you know, it takes about five years to get a drug through FDA clinical trials. And because we had complete uninterrupted uptime for the high-performance computing portion of our clinical trials, we were able to get those drugs into the hands of our patients faster. And so, wow, you know, that really brings it, brought it home for all of us as well. You know, what we do matters. The mission criticality of what we do matters. Every single company that we serve is depending on us to keep them on so that they can deliver their products and services out to the world. And think about how important that's become to healthcare companies during the pandemic. I mean, the healthcare industry has truly had to undergo digital transformation over the past year and a half, whether they planned on it or not. They needed more connectivity, they needed more data, they needed more innovation, they need all these things that they especially need uptime. This was also uh, one of the things that Amgen used from us was that buying power of the core cooperative. As the illustration showed earlier, we helped save them over half a million dollars a month in telecom costs, which was more than they pay us for the entire data center project that they have here. And so if we can help healthcare companies save money, and potentially put money back in their budget so that they can buy more servers or do whatever it is that they need to do to be more successful, that benefits all of us because we all depend on them to deliver their services when we need them, when it's important to us or when it's important to our family members. Radiology Partners is another great example of one of our customers. So they are the largest physician-owned and physician-led radiology practice in the United States with over 3,000 sites. 49 million cases a year, and almost 3,000 radiologists who work for them. We all want them to do their job immediately when we need them to be there. They cannot suffer downtime. And so they depend on us for that mission-critical uptime for their services. But they also depend on us to help them with the connectivity pricing because, again, they are having to evolve farther and faster than they ever have before. And so according to Paul Smith, the VP of IT service operations there at Radiology Partners, they said, we engage Switch to provide us with telecom services, which includes auditing thousands of telecom circuits that we have throughout the country. And after several months, we've already identified over half a million dollars in annual savings. We plan to engage Switch in further investigating telecom expense management solutions, as well as a network design to interconnect our networks across multiple Switch data center facilities and a myriad of other services. So we, are, we have a vested interest in helping our healthcare partners, as well as our financial companies and our media companies and everyone else that uses Switch, because we truly understand the importance of what we do for them. What we deliver is truly the best product at the best prices in the safest places in the country. Our customers are depending on us to deliver that mission-critical uptime, but also to help them innovate, to help them do high densities at scale to help them truly reduce their carbon footprint by running all of their machines on clean and renewable energy, and by enabling them to say with confidence to their customers that they truly can be there for them because we are there supporting what they do. So thank you very much for listening to me, and I'm, I'm here all afternoon if you guys have questions, but it's my privilege to introduce you to someone that the Switch executive team has known for about a decade, uh, we were so thrilled that he could join us. And so please join me in welcoming our Chief Revenue Officer, Jonathan King. Thank you. Thank you, Missy. Such a great presentation just now, this morning. And as you mentioned, we've, I've had the privilege of knowing you for a long time. 
and it's an honor to work alongside you, truly, and the whole Switch team. And welcome, everyone, again. We're in the afternoon stretch now, and welcome to those on the stream. It's surreal for me to be standing here because, as Thomas mentioned, shortly after this building opened, I had the privilege of coming and meeting Rob Roy and the team for the first time, way back over a decade ago. And at the time, I had already had a fair amount of experience in the data center industry, way back before the dot-com boom. I had worked with Exodus. I'd worked with a bunch of managed service providers. And from the moment I met Rob and saw this facility and his vision for it, I knew I was engaging with someone who was just thinking different at a whole different level. And since that time, I've stayed in touch with Rob and the team. And I've had the privilege of being a customer, being a partner, I've gone and worked and gotten international experience at Ericsson, operating experience at CenturyLink and Verizon, and most recently at, at Google Cloud. And really, what I'm going to do in my section is share some of my perspective on what motivated me to join, which really relate to market trends and the opportunity that I see it switch to engage with those trends, scale its sales and revenue function over the coming years, really to uh, capture the opportunity. And the way that I'm going to do this is really in three parts. First, I'm going to talk about market trends. Second, I'm going to talk about switch differentiation, which really uniquely positions it to take advantage of those trends. And then finally, sales, ecosystem, and channel opportunities that I see as I've gotten started uh, to really bring that differentiation to those trends and to our customers and partners. So first, market trends. I'll talk about three. I'll talk about how public cloud and co-location continue to grow and that there's an interrelation of that growth and that enterprise data centers are closing. Second, Missy touched on this, and I'll touch on it again, the increasing need for high-density deployments. And then finally, really Thomas and Missy touched on this, I'll be covering it from a market perspective, is that sustainability, efficiency, and resilience have now become imperative decision-making criteria for all customers. So first, public cloud and co-location continue to grow, and enterprise data centers are closing. Really, why is this? What's going on here? And from my time at Google Cloud, before that at Worldwide Technology, and before that CenturyLink, um, I've had a chance to engage on a number of large data center migrations, both to co-location and to public cloud. And really, every customer is looking at a hybrid strategy. And what's happening is more and more customers, as I think everyone knows, are moving and adopting public cloud, often multiple public clouds. And as they do, let's say half of their data center is now either moved or going to be moved to public cloud. What it does is it change, changes the calculus of how a company looks at running their operations. They need to move their workloads closer to public cloud. They re need to redesign their network. And so really what, we, what has happened as a trend and what we, what we see continuing happening as a trend is that as public cloud rises, so too does co-location. And I think we've all gotten appreciation for supply chain uh, throughout the pandemic in various ways. I think a core heartbeat of the, of the technology supply chain is refresh cycles. So every four to five years, companies refresh their technology infrastructure in their data centers. And what, what we're starting to see is that as companies evaluate a refresh, as they look at 
the, what's running in their data center, what's moved to public cloud, that creates an opening for us, a decision cycle, for us to engage with that customer as they look at refreshing their equipment into a co-location facility, get it closer to cloud. And every refresh cycle going forward, as we'll talk about in a second, involves higher and higher density. So as they've exited in infrastructure from their enterprise data center to cloud, they don't have the investment case to, to continue to modernize their uh, enterprise data center. They really benefit from a co-location site. And, and beyond that, the stakes are, are rising. Not only do they have to modernize to meet density, they have to meet renewable targets, and it really just becomes too much of a burden. And so you bring all this together, and really legacy and steady state workloads, um, as they get refreshed, need co-location and will continue to need co-location. So that's really one trend. And just to support this, you look at a re recent IDC uh, study, Worldwide Enterprise Data Center Installed Square Feet has dropped by 30% from 27 to 2020 and is projected to drop by over 30% through 2025. And corresponding to that, you see worldwide data center capacity shifting from the enterprise to cloud and co-location. So this is a trend that's been going on and is projected to continue on for the next five years. And I think oftentimes, I remember um, back when I was at Worldwide Technology and we would engage with customers, we would always talk about public cloud and which public cloud you would want to work with. And then right behind it, there was another discussion about co-location. And it almost, they, they just coincided. And this is going to continue. So, Missy did a great job of giving the example on this. And this is something that we continue to see as a market trend as well, which is the increasing need for high density. And not only is it uh, the data center itself looking to be more economical and run in a smaller footprint, there are technological drivers out there in terms of new chip designs, GPUs, hyper-converged architectures. Um, those are putting that much more pressure on companies wanting to and needing to run high-density configurations. And as I touched on earlier, if you already have a data center that has had workloads moved to cloud, and then now you have a need to have more energy and more cooling to support a higher density, as well as sustainability, it really diminishes the ability of a data center to meet the kind of rack density needs and efficiency that are required. And so here too, this is another trend that points towards companies looking for co-location. So supporting this is a 2020 data center knowledge survey of uh, IT decision makers who were asked to, to, to comment on their, uh, on their perspective on density. And while there are some debates about timing of when density will come, I think there's no question that density is increasing. So in this, in this survey, you can see that by over 60%, almost 70% of respondents respond, responded that it, density is increasing either significantly or somewhat. No one is saying that density is going down. So there's no debate about that. Um, so third, I've talked about how public cloud and co-location really reinforce each other as growth and data centers are closing. I've talked about how density is rising. Now this third trend, and all of these come together and reinforce themselves, is that sustainability, efficiency, and resilience are imperatives. They are and I've been surprised in my short time, this has always been a, a passion of mine and part of 
my motivation to join Switch, given their leadership in this space and Rob's vision. But it's, it's top of mind for every customer. It's, it's come up unprompted on almost every customer call that I've been engaged with since I joined Switch. And I think I want to look at this then a little bit clo more closely so we can unpack it. I think oftentimes when you look at sustainability, there, it's been on the horizon. It's been in the future. And I think as COP26 highlighted, sustainability is now. I mean, that was just last week. It's now climate change is not a academic topic. It's not in the future. It truly is now, and it's a buying criteria. And I think as I first met Rob here in this building uh, over 10 years ago, he was talking about sustainability and an ambition to get to renewable energy sources. But that wasn't all he was thinking about. The inventions that he's uh, patented around efficiency and power, and then how even outside of the data center he's thinking about water, all of these things now getting recognition from Greenpeace, EPA, SEIA, and others, is, is really puts us in a unique position as a recognized leader. So as CRO, what I see with this, I put my CRO lens on, this represents really untapped opportunity for switch to clearly establish an, a voice out there around sustainability, which we can use to engage with customers and be top of mind in their decision-making criteria as they're looking at closing or exiting their data center, and now sustainability is a criteria of where they go, we have an opportunity to really amplify our messaging in this space and be recognized. So for that decision criteria, we get customers' attention. And so I think just validating this as a decision criteria point, this is an S&P Global 500 uh, uh, inventory of uh, sustainability reports. And if you go back to 2011, only 20% of companies were publishing sustainability reports. Fast forward to 2019 and close to over 90%. I think it's approaching 100% as we sit here today. Companies are publishing sustainability reports. So this is a new channel of of engagement with customers, and I'm excited to look at ways that we can engage with this channel, as I'll talk about in a little bit. I think one of, and actually Rob educated me on this in our first meeting, and it's something I've continued to talk with him about, is oftentimes sustainability gets reduced down to renewable energy. And really, that is table stakes, but it is not all of the story. It's crucial that you not only have renewable energy, but you have efficiency with renewable energy. And this gets back to the density designs that are required and to the economies of running a data center, is that the more efficient you are, not only are you being more environmentally responsible, you're also running a better business that can support the coming designs of higher density that customers require. And so I think the, all the patents that, that Missy discussed this morning the tour that you've seen, the efficiency that, that really Rob has built into his design and into his entire approach to think about data centers puts us in a unique position to, um, in addition to the renewable energy that we, do, that we um, run on, to also engage and take advantage of our unique efficiency story. And just to put this in perspective, um, power usage effectiveness, or PUE, um, is a measure of a data center's energy efficiency. And this is a, um, a 2021 Uptime Institute um, global data center survey that shows a trend line from 2007 through 21 of 
global average PUE. And you can see that there was a, over really two, until about five years ago, there was a sharp decline, and then it's, it's flatlined, um, really above 1.5. And um, in, the, in the survey, it says there's a clear explanation for this. Even as a growing number of new builds sport design PUEs of 1.3 or better, it is not economically or technically feasible for many operators to perform the major overhauls needed for better efficiency in many older facilities. And this is really the point that I've been touching on as, as I've been getting here, is that SWITCH and this campus that you're sitting in right here has an audited average PUE at this kind of scale at 1.28, which is better than brand new facilities being built as referenced previously and much better than the, the averages that you're seeing here. So this is another benefit that we bring to the table. And then finally, as we talk about sustainability, you're not just talking about renewable energy. You have to talk about efficiency, but you also have to talk about resilience. From COP26 last week, it looks like the stretch goal is 1.5 degrees Celsius of rise, the stretch, which means that most people think no matter what we do going forward, we're all going to experience 1.5 or more degrees Celsius of temperature change, which is going to lead to continued events like we've been seeing wherever, wherever we may live or have come from or are watching from today. And so resilience really matters. So the kind of resilience that Rob has built into these facilities in terms of power and cooling and the tier design level, the, the roof that you saw Missy demonstrate earlier, the, the, the two roof, multiple roof, each one designed to withstand 200 mile per hour of wind. These are all things that um, are critically important and also, what Missy touched on, that we can run on without water for a prolonged duration. These are all resilience approaches, preparedness for natural disasters. I hope you all have come to see that this is a highly secure facility. If you bring all these things together, what it adds up to is a highly differentiated offering in a market that has tailwinds. And really, I just touched on sustainability, efficiency, resilience. I think the, what Missy touched on, I covered rack density, system plus system power, the cooling innovation that we have. All of these brought together don't just let us stand out. They let us meet our customers' uptime in a highly socially responsible way. And that really is just exciting for me as CRO because we can stand out and then when we're there, differentiate and, and as Thomas mentioned, deliver more value at a fair price to engage customers both existing and new. And I think, lastly, is just on the product set itself, the core cooperative, what we've touched on a couple times, Thomas, Missy, what I would say is that every cloud and data center migration involves, by definition, a network migration. So many times, this is another way for us to engage customers, is on the front end of the sales cycle, we might learn that a customer is looking to redesign a network and wants to save. So it becomes a value prop where we can engage with that customer, we can help them modernize their network architecture, we can help them save money, and that helps motivate and engage them as a prime campus customer. And then, of course, there is the prime campus itself. A core attribute of a customer buying a data center and working with a partner is they want to know that they have the scale and the capacity to grow in the future. And that's really, I think, just one of the unique one of the many unique things of Switch is the scale that Thomas talked about that we're bringing online 
really uniquely positions us at a time to capitalize on these trends as the migration moves to cloud and as data centers move to co-location, we and the capacity that we're bringing on in the United States in this distribution is truly unique. Um, and it's, and it's, just, it's just tremendously exciting. And then finally is the culture. And so I've long been a fan of Switch and, and had a passion for Switch. And a big part of that is, is the culture. And Missy shared Rob's karma wheel and doing the right thing. And I think that's really, um, being here a short time, I can, I can only appreciate that much more, that it's as, as deeply embraced behind the curtain as it was, you know, in front of the curtain. And so, if you bring all these, these items together and look at the trends in the market that we're well situated to capitalize on, leveraging our differentiation, we can now end and I'll talk about bringing together some sales ecosystem and channel opportunities uh, that I see. And here too, I'll talk about three of them. First, Oh, well, before I do, lest I forget, one thing we're excited about is tours returning. So thank you all again for coming. It's important to note that the past year and a half, we've been continuing to grow and execute, and we haven't been able to use tours, and we're super excited uh, going into next year to really get our tour engine cranking. And that's another thing to highlight, is that having known Switch for a long time, I'm uh, everyone at Switch sells. So when you go on a tour, uh, it's really a unique a unique capability, and a lot of that comes from just how great the product is. You have a unique sales culture that's been built around a great product. And so, as CRO, the last thing I want to do is disrupt this engine. I want to see it continue to grow, and so that's one of the great things about teaming with Missy, with the whole team, is keeping this engine going. That said, as I've been working with the team, we see a couple of areas of growth as we, uh, as we prepare to scale. So in the next two to three years, as we bring on increasing amounts of capacity, what are areas that we can, we can uh, further develop? And I think the first one is around horizontal and vertical campaigns. And I've already been sort of leading up to this around two horizontal opportunities around sustainability and data center closing. So you'll see we, of course, do an ESG report, and we already have a sustainability campaign that's out there. I think there's more that we can do. And also, you'll see us start to work on data center closing uh, campaign and material so that we have an ability to engage customers early in their decision cycle and also add value to that decision cycle in terms of information, partners, and solutions. And I think also there's a vertical campaign opportunity. We've conducted a healthcare campaign over the past year, and I, I think I was talking with one of you this morning about the the... The, in, the interesting thing there is it's a value for new customers and of existing customers. And this is an opportunity for us to understand, uh, for example, in the healthcare space, the kinds of workloads that are moving from a corporate data center to co-location, the kinds of workloads that are moving to cloud. So now, having done a campaign to our healthcare base, our healthcare targets, we can refine that campaign and do successive waves, tuning into specific solutions and workloads and make it a virtuous cycle. And I think we want to repeat that across other prime verticals that represent opportunities for us. So second is ecosystem. And so here, I really break this up into three areas. From a technology partnership standpoint, we work in some way, shape, or form with every major technology provider there is. There's opportunity for us to engage further with them. The same trends that I just discussed in terms of um, closing corporate data centers, 
rack density and sustainability, our technology partners know these same trends and they want to engage with us. So uh, we already talked about a partnership with Dell, many other technology partners we have upside and opportunity to, partner, uh, to partner with. Similarly, MSPs, we have many MSPs that are our customers. There's win-win scenarios where we can grow their business, bring value to a customer and grow our, our business at the same time, as well as system integrator partnerships. As we look to do more and more around data center closing and hybrid cloud solutions, a key component of that is having go-to SI partners who can help with that data center migration and that hybrid cloud architecture. And this is another area of opportunity for Switch. And then finally is the channel opportunity. And this is an area where I've had a tremendous amount of experience in my career. And really, when I start with channel, I don't start with more feet on the street. What I start with is first is an enhanced customer experience. So we have a channel business today, and it's a good foundation. And there's opportunity now as part of capitalizing on these trends, these vertical campaigns, and these technology partnerships to engage really with some leading uh, resellers, not just to get second bullet, more feet on the street from a sales standpoint, but to add more value to our customers, to make a data center um, migration happen seamlessly. And that's something that we'll definitely be working on. And so with that, that concludes my section, and this is probably the most exciting part. I get to announce a break, and so we'll take a break now, and then um, we'll, we'll hear from Gabe and Rob this afternoon. I just want to thank you all again for joining. Take care.
resume momentarily. Please take your seats and silence all mobile devices. Thank you. Please welcome Switch's Chief Financial Officer, Gabe Nock. Hello, everyone. We're about to get started again. We hope you found our investor day to be informative and entertaining thus far, but you know, we've been spending the last few days getting ready for today and really haven't been paying attention to anything else going on in the world. So has, has anything happened in the data center industry that we, we need to be aware of? Super quiet? Well, for those of you that have dollars invested in CoreSight, in Cyrus One, and who were invested in QTS, we do have a message for you, and that's we have a home for your investment dollars. And that home is Switch. And we're going to talk a bit today as to why we think that home will continue to allow your investment dollars to grow over time. Before handing the stage over to Rob Roy, I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why Switch's differentiated and proprietary designs provide significant long-term financial advantages, both to Switch and its clients. I'll also discuss the key drivers behind our strong growth and profitability trends over the past few years, as well as the tailwinds that we believe will continue to propel our growth years into the future. And I'll conclude with a discussion about our five-year financial outlook and our uh, REIT conversion status. Since day one, Rob Roy's vision has been to design, build, and operate the best data centers on the planet, enabling the sustainable growth of the Internet and all that goes into it. 
Our facilities are designed to withstand not only the outdoor elements, power outages, and natural disasters, but also the constant evolution of technology that we believe will render many lesser facilities obsolete over the next several years. SWITCH is proud of its consistent track record of organic growth, both in top-line revenue and adjusted EBITDA. Our revenue and adjusted EBITDA have compounded at 13%, both on a trailing six-year and three-year basis, which has led the data center industry. We would like you to leave today's presentation with a few key takeaways that underscore SWITCH's investment value proposition and first is SWITCH's durable and consistent, sustainable top-line revenue growth. SWITCH has posted 21 consecutive years of revenue growth. Over 95% of our revenue is recurring in nature, with very low customer churn of less than 1% annually. The differentiation and value we provide for our customers attracts new logos, while our existing customers tend to expand with us over time. And SWITCH can continue to grow and develop properties for the next 10 plus years and up to 16 million square feet without having to buy any more land. Finally, as you've heard today, we believe that our long-term growth outlook is supported by industry tailwinds and growing demand for highly resilient, high-density, Tier 5 data center infrastructure. Secondly, we want you to understand what drives SWITCH's operating efficiency which leads to industry-leading per-share value creation. SWITCH leads the industry in AFFO growth per share since 2018. SWITCH also leads the industry in EBITDA growth per share since 2018. Our prime campus model lends itself to increasing operating efficiency as the primes increase in scale, enabling long-term margin expansion. While we need additional staff as the primes expand, we don't need to duplicate the management layers in the same way that a more distributed footprint requires, and this drives efficiency and margin expansion. Additionally, since acquiring Data Foundry in June of 2021, we've already identified and implemented over $2 million in annualized savings. The third point that we would like you to take away is that SWITCH's capital discipline and unique modular designs result in leading and sustainable return on invested capital. SWITCH will continue to prioritize growth through the build-out of our existing primes. As these primes mature, we expect to maintain our historical unlevered returns of 15% to 20% for seasoned assets. Embedded in this expectation is our ability to deliver Tier 5 resiliency and efficiency for our customers at a comparable cost to others Tier 2 and Tier 3 data centers. We do this by building the same repeatable and proprietary modular designs. We also act as our own general contractor and electrical contractor, cutting out a layer of cost. Additionally, we have unique relationships with our equipment suppliers to build equipment based on SWITCH's patented designs, and we buy at scale to reduce costs. The total cost of ownership advantage that we provide to our customers through our differentiated value proposition, which includes resiliency, high density, and the unique core telecom cooperative, drives favorable unit economics and a growing return on capital. 
We understand that as investors and analysts, you compare Switch to our data center peers, or as of this morning, our data center peer. Comparing Switch to our data center peers, we believe Switch leads the data center industry in the most important categories that drive long-term shareholder value. We lead all of the peers in organic revenue growth, and we are number one in AFFO per share growth and EBITDA per share growth. We're number one in terms of incremental return on invested capital, and we are absolutely number one in sustainability with a 100% renewable energy ranking. Let me go into these key performance indicators in a bit more detail. Switch's strong trends in bookings and unit pricing have contributed to an industry-leading growth rate since 2018, which was our first full year as a public company. Based on 2021 guidance, midpoints for Switch and its peers, our total revenue is compounded at 13.4% annually compared to the 10.4% peer average. Prior to the acquisition of Data Foundry in June of 2021, Switch's revenue growth since inception was entirely organic. After adjusting for the expected Data Foundry contribution in 2021, our three-year organic compound annual growth rate was 11.7% compared to an 8.1% peer average. Our sales engine continues to produce robust incremental revenue bookings, both from new customers and existing customer expansions. Our trailing 12-month annualized incremental bookings of $86 million are a record for Switch as a public company. Additionally, Switch has seen strong unit pricing growth over the past three years, with an average 2.5% annual increase in monthly recurring charges per cabinet. This is being driven by four primary factors, including annual co-location price escalations of approximately 1.5% to 2%, a gradual increase in power densities as customers upgrade to more efficient chipsets and run applications requiring more compute power, a steady growth in cross-connects and overall connectivity services, and an increase in the utilization of our newer prime locations. Our monthly recurring charges per cabinet compares favorably with our primary retail co-location peers. At over $2,500 per month in recurring charges per cabinet, Switch leads both Equinix and Corsight in this key metric. Additionally, Switch has seen stronger year-over-year -year growth in monthly recurring charges per cabinet than both Equinix and Corsight. Another driver of our revenue growth and unit pricing trends is Switch's unique and highly differentiated core telecom cooperative, which continues to, to uh, generate strong double-digit revenue growth. By aggregating the combined purchasing power of over 1,300 customers, the cooperative enables Switch to deliver 30 to 50% cost savings on telecom purchasing for our clients. This helps our customers achieve a lower total cost of ownership and reduces churn. Switch's cross-connect revenue continues to increase and now makes up 24% of connectivity revenue. Our connectivity revenue is scaled up rapidly at the new prime locations and is currently at a $12 million annualized run rate. This is a function of customer adoption of our telecom purchasing cooperative as they ramp into the data center deployments in the newer Switch primes and as their existing telecom contracts expire. 
Connectivity revenue currently represents 10% of total revenue at the new primes, already reaching half the penetration rate of the core campus, which has been operating for more than 20 years. High margin cross-connects continue to be our fastest growing revenue stream within the connectivity business. Cross-connect revenue has grown at 21% compound annual rate since 2016 and now represents nearly a quarter of total connectivity revenue. As a result of, strong, of our strong organic growth profile and highly efficient capital deployment, Switch has led the industry in per-share AFFO growth since 2018. Our AFFO growth per share of 13% is nearly triple the industry average. Switch's unique modular designs enable us to deploy capital on an almost just-in-time basis in response to customer demand, and this drives high return on invested capital. Uniquely, Switch's return on, on invested capital continues to increase even when a facility is full as customers are able to add compute density and telecom services over time. I'd like to walk you through an example of the economics of Switch's return on invested capital. This slide deconstructs an example of our target ROIC on a per sector basis. A fully seasoned sector with 780 cabinets operating with 90% utilization and a monthly recurring charges of $2,500 per cabinet translates to more than $21 million in annualized revenue. With a 60% operating cash flow margin, we expect over $12.5 million in annual cash flow, including maintenance capex. Targeting an average build cost of approximately $70 million per sector at full deployment, this translates to a target ROIC of over 18%, and this will continue to increase over time as customers add density and telecom services. This slide provides a bit more detail on the return that Switch generates from its seasoned assets in Las Vegas. Our seasoned portfolio is defined as assets which have been in service for more than five years. This includes six data centers in the core campus with an average age of 10 years in service. The portfolio is 94% committed and has a billing utilization of 89%, representing ongoing customer ramps. The MRC per cabinet in this portfolio is over $2,550, reflecting a mature and highly seasoned customer profile. Most importantly, the portfolio generates stable ROIC in the mid-20% range and generates over $200 million in annual free cash flow. Our expansion portfolio is defined as assets which have been in service less than five years. This includes two data centers in the core campus with an average age of just over three years. The two data centers are 87% committed, but have a build utilization of 64%, reflecting embedded customer ramps in our contractual backlog. The assets have an average MRC per cabinet of approximately $1,950, and we expect both utilization and MRC per cabinet to increase over time, both key drivers of return on invested capital, which we expect to converge toward the low to mid 20% range. Switch's adjusted EBITDA margin trends have continued to increase throughout a period of margin compression for the industry. 
increasing 270 basis points since 2018, while the peers have seen a 320 basis point decline on average. We believe this can be attributed to our campus model, which enables fixed cost efficiencies as newer primes scale up. Switch has been able to maintain a stable margin in 2021 versus 2020 after including the absorption of data foundry. As items like travel and entertainment have normalized in 2021, the COVID-related cost savings of 2020 have either been maintained or offset by other efficiencies. Our current prime campus land bank will facilitate the future build-out of an incremental 11 million gross square feet of capacity, enabling Switch to more than triple its total square footage to over 16 million at full build-out. This is critically important for our enterprise customers as they will not close their own data centers and move to co-location without confidence that they will have sufficient expansion capacity. We're currently in the active construction phase on 1.3 million square feet of new data center shell to be delivered in Las Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, and Atlanta between 2022 and 2023. At the same time, we are doing site preparation for the next 2.2 million square feet of space that will be delivered between 2024 and 2026. Based on the build-out plan shown here, we expect to reach approximately 6.4 million square feet by 2023 and 8.6 million by 2026. This slide provides a more granular view of our development schedule to illustrate the timing of future facilities according to our construction plan. As you can see, the plan calls for more than 2 million square feet of new space being activated between 2024 and 2026, for which we've already begun the site preparation and underground work. This means that capital expenditures are occurring two to three years in advance, enabling us to deliver the subsequent data center at each prime more rapidly in future years. This also creates efficiencies in build costs by avoiding duplicate work as a prime is scaled up. And it also provides a smoothing effect to our capital expenditures to avoid stranding excess capital into assets that will not be cash flowing in a relatively short period of time. The 60% expansion of our capacity through 2026 will fuel what we believe will be continued industry-leading compound annual growth. However, the growth rates won't be linear as the timing of online capacity and the typical sell and fill rates, as well as the new construction opening dates on all of our new buildings will affect the growth in each individual year. Let me walk you through an example of how a new building typically sells and fills over time to drive revenue growth. Las Vegas 15 is scheduled to come online in the early part of 2022. It is designed as a three-sector building with each sector containing approximately 780 cabinets. Based on our recent bookings history, Switch expects to contractually sell out approximately 80% of the sector in about six months. However, the sector will fill to billable cabinets in approximately 18 months due to expected customer ramps. Meanwhile, we'll open sectors two and three as the previous sectors are contractually committed but they too will have similar six-month sales and 18-month billing ramp cycles. So as a result, the building should achieve its highest revenue growth rate in months 12 through 24. 
So using this example and applying it to the build plan on the previous slide will provide a reasonable expectation for our growth potential over time. Based on the development plan and building timing that we just described, and without assuming any additional acquisitions, Switch is targeting the following financial objectives over the next five years ending in 2026. We expect consolidated compound annual revenue growth of 10% to 12%, leading to a 2026 revenue target of more than $950 million. However, just, as just discussed, this growth rate will not be linear and will depend on the timing of facilities coming online and their fill rates. We are targeting an adjusted EBITDA margin of 55%, representing increased margin efficiencies as the primes mature. Finally, we expect adjusted funds from operations of greater than $425 million by 2026, representing compound annual growth of more than 12%. To achieve these growth objectives, we anticipate total capital expenditures in the range of 400 to 500 million per year, with capital intensity likely peaking in 2023 and 2024, given our current build-out schedule. We anticipate being able to achieve this growth, growth profile without the use of incremental equity. However, additional equity may become a consideration if we choose to accelerate projects based on customer demand or depending on the final outcome of our restructuring alternatives that I will discuss next. As you know, Elliott Management has taken a significant position in Switch stock and has joined our board of directors. They've been very supportive of, of a REIT conversion, which was already in the process of being analyzed prior to their investment. And they continue to be very actively involved at the board level to help us build shareholder value. I know many of you are curious to hear more details about Switch's recently announced plans to convert to a REIT structure, which we believe will enhance shareholder value by creating a more efficient tax structure and by attracting a new group of REIT-specific investors. This is a complex process, but we are confident that we can complete the conversion and we will be spending the next year working on the details. As announced, we are targeting to complete a REIT election as of January 1, 2023. Because converting to a REIT is a tax election, we must make the election prior to filing our 2023 tax returns, which is expected to be filed in October of 2024. However, we will want to be operating as if we are a REIT during 2023 to ensure that we meet all requirements upon making the election. We've received a number of questions about whether we will seek a private letter ruling from the IRS prior to converting. We don't believe a PLR will be necessary as the IRS issued final REIT guidelines in 2016 and there are a number of precedents in our space from which to draw upon. There are legal and structuring changes that will be needed to convert from our current up-C structure to an up-REIT structure including amending Switch's corporate uh, charter and its bylaws and establishing a taxable REIT subsidiary. We will need to work with our tax advisors and auditors on a detailed analysis of our assets and income streams to determine which qualify as real estate and which will need to be moved to a taxable REIT subsidiary. There are a number of key decisions that we'll be making over the next year 
which will affect the ultimate REIT structure and the cash flows associated with our conversion. We're currently structured as an up with a tax receivable agreement. As our switch limited partners convert partnership units to publicly held switch shares, there's a step up in tax basis and an agreement to share the, benefit, the benefits of that step up in basis with our partners as switch is able to utilize those tax benefits over time. Converting to a REIT is not considered a change of control and will not trigger an early t- uh, termination of the TRA. As such, we have a number of alternatives with regard to the TRA. First, we can do nothing and simply maintain the TRA as is. However, there will be some uncertainty as to any future benefit from the TRA as a REIT is not a taxable entity. Another option is to amend the TRA and point it to the taxable REIT subsidiary, which is a taxable entity. Of course, one of the goals in converting to a REIT is to be more easily compared to our peer group, none of whom have a TRA in place. Therefore, another option is to elect to terminate the TRA or negotiate a buyout of the TRA liability. And there are a number of recent precedents that have bought out their TRA liabilities at a substantial discount. We are comfortable that we'll find an acceptable solution with regard to the TRA. We're also exploring if a re-election will create a material change in our accounting and if we will need to change the structure of our existing contracts. Switch uses a license model for contracting and revenue recognition. At this point, we do not believe we will need to make a change to our license model or contracts while qualifying for REIT purposes. Depreciation is another issue which we are studying. Traditionally, data centers have converted their assets to real estate for REIT qualification and have then used real estate lives for depreciation. The final REIT rules issued by the IRS in 2016 provide the potential to continue using our existing depreciation lives while still qualifying the assets as real estate for REIT purposes. This is a highly technical issue that we will be exploring as part of our conversion process. Finally, REITs are required to distribute their earnings and profits prior to the conversion. While we are still working on the specific numbers, we do not believe the E&P purge will be material for switch. As mentioned, there's a lot of work to be done, but we're confident in our ability to execute, and while we do not yet have all of the answers, we will keep you informed throughout the year as we make these key determinations. And now we'll take a minute to set up for Q&A and to hear from our founder and CEO.
Testing, testing. There it is, Pastor. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> guys, um, talk about fourth cloud evolution and our edge data center concept and what we're doing with that. Um, finish up with premium valuation conversation and then into questions. And so, guys, I'm going to play this and we'll start to jump in right away to why I have a 10-year vision for data center tech and when most people talk about one- or three-year visions. is an illustration we've done on 11% growth for the next 10 years. That gets us to 11 million square feet of the 16 million square feet that we can currently build out on just the five existing primes. Um, a lot of why I'm, I'm really going to emphasize you know, exascale and why we believe that our business model is so differentiated and on purpose focused on scale from 10 years back. If you look, we end up with seasoned EBITDA margins of 55%. I'm going to explain why I believe we have a much more truthful pathway to 55% EBITDA than anybody else in the industry. And then, of course, guys, with an EBITDA number here 10 years out with only 11% growth, obviously watching Gabe's slide, you guys know we've been at 13% for the last six years. But with this, any multiple that really any of you analysts would want to pick and throw in on that, you know, it's a pathway towards $20 billion you know, market cap just 10 years from today. And so, guys, how are we going to get there on that? And this is how. You know, on purpose, five locations in the United States that are, again, at exascale. And exascale I define as millions, not a million, millions of square feet in one ecosystem where, you know, really in any given environment over time, 2,000 clients at each campus are interacting and gaining scale together. Of course, uh, everybody's been talking about the rock, but that one's, that's a very exciting project for us, and all five of those parcels are purchased and underway, and we start construction. The end of this month, we start breaking ground and the, the building one up in the rock there. Again, point out just some stuff again with scale, because I think, I think it is something in the industry that maybe gets missed. And so when you look at our five campus locations, 91,000 cabinets, but those of you that toured today, we're three to 500% more dense. So it's not a square footage number that really enables what's going on with today's density. It's a cubic number. It's the amount of cubic feet of cooling that we have in these buildings that is higher than anywhere else in the world. So because of that, 
91,000 cabinets for us would be the same as 300,000 cabinets for really our, as Gabe says, peer, peers. There's a few left. And then, of course, guys, you look at things like capacity, tool sets. Uh, one of the things I like to point out to people when they're learning about the industry, if you look at other data center marketing concepts, and they talk about we have 24 MBA at this data center outside of Chicago. Well, you, you can just go on Google Earth and pull it up and look outside and go, well, there's only three generators today. So it's, yeah, maybe there's a 24 MBA substation somewhere, but what is that building really running? The generators are the one thing that you can tell. Because even if they're in a building, you can move around on Google Earth and see the louvers on the side of the building and go, okay, they have five generators in that building, so I know exactly how much power they're running in that building. doesn't matter what the substation does. To point that out, guys, in just the Citadel campus, we'll have more generators when it's built out than any of our peers have the Equinix at all 91 locations in the United States. It, it is a scale that I think most of the world still hasn't probably leaned into where the numbers are going. So, again, a big part of my first piece here is to really bring across the scale. Uh, I'm going to go through this way just visually fast, and we'll jump through these, but uh, obviously building out 14, 15, 16 in Las Vegas. And I said, this is, these are the shots of what's been underway now for really most of these three or four years. For the, the substations, because these are multi-hundred megawatt substations, that's five years of planning and working on permitting and working with environments, especially because we're 100% green. So five years of work have gone into place by the time we're building out these next locations. Of course, guys, here's when you see this 16, but if you see in the far background, the land across the street there that's still all desert, Switch owns that. And so we really have been working to be prepared to now just move forward on the enterprise side. I'm going to talk about what the Fourth Cloud Alliance is. First, the Citadel up in Tahoe, Reno. 1,400 acres we have up there. Tahoe, Reno 2, 3, and 4 under construction. And guys, massive scale. This has just been going on every day for the last three years. Atlanta, Atlanta 1, I think you guys know we opened that and sold out in four months. Uh, interesting thing just about what the five primes do is Atlanta sold out and 99% of the clients, 99% of the cabinets in that are not from Atlanta. It, these really are regional hubs. And that's, I think, a super important point the circles you saw on the map in the big part, it's 15 millisecond gateways. So we believe that we can get to really all 320 million eyeballs that you need to get to in the United States from these five locations on purpose, but also where it's not all spread out to the point where it hurts your scale, which hurts your ability to really optimize the business model. And this is really, guys, I think, you know, the story about Switch that's so unique. We've spent the last 10 years getting ready for these next 10 years. And these next 10 years, uh, we'll talk about the marketing campaign. But in terms of you know the physical side, it's already all been done. We've been under construction every day, um, 1.3 million square feet of space during COVID. You know, all five power gateways are negotiated and under construction. Multi-carrier nodes are built out. Proven success in each location. The first buildings at all our other primes are selling out in record time. It was something that as we, after we went public, I think there were questions about, well, as you expand, uh, you know, are you going to be able to do in other locations what you did here in this region? And I think, guys, we've answered that question. All five regions, 
fast as we can build them, they're going to, we believe, sell out. And then we have 16 million square feet of gross, high-density gross, all ready to go. We, the Atlas Stone's pushed up the hill. We don't need to do any of that work anymore. Now, I think in, in January, I'm going to push the Atlas Stone down the hill, and we're going to just go run with it. it, we, it it's a very exciting time for us. Um, Jonathan, of course, is new chief revenue officer, is actually chained to that Atlas Stone. So you should run really quick. <laughs> and so, guys, then I'm going to go, you know, with all of this product, how are we going to fill it up? And I, it, obviously it's been an intention of ours for the last 10 years as we're getting ready. We, we believe we have a very specific need in the industry that's coming, and this is the fourth crop process. So I'm, I'm going to read this fastest so everybody understands these tool sets. Uh, most of you know FedEx was the alpha on this and has actually done all six of these steps, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But it really, it, it is a number that's going to save FedEx not tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 10 years. And that is the product that we brought forward. That's the Tier 4, Tier 5, high-end side of data center as everybody's getting ready to, now in the next 10 years, close their enterprise data centers. Our intention really was never to work on the Tier 2 need side. When you look at any given data center that's built out, there's a bunch of stuff in there that's Tier 2. The cloud can absorb all Tier 2 data centers. Tier 3, Equinix and CoreSight, great data centers. Lots of enterprise data centers have sections in them that are Tier 3. Cloud can absorb some of that. Colo can absorb the other part. But almost every large-scale corporation has a Tier 4 need in their data centers. Most of the Tier 4 data centers on Earth, of course, are enterprise data centers. Uh, I think you guys know Switch is the only co-location company that's really ever certified multiple Tier 4, and then even moved past that design to get ready for what we believe is coming next business-wise. But this is the process. Move 30 to 50% of your corporate tech needs to the clouds. As everybody knows, that's been well underway for a long time, and most CIOs, if you interview them, they're either there now or getting there shortly in the next few years. Uh, this is, of course, what we believe. Close your corporate data centers and move the primary enterprise gear, some world-class, highly resilient co-location ecosystem, Join the, you know, this is something that we do that I also I think people maybe don't understand. So our telecom core is the largest purchasing co-op in the world for telecom. Uh, our two partners in the fourth cloud, you guys know who the, the first two we've announced, they've moved all of their telecom purchasing over to switch. Not just the local stuff. So if you look at our other data center peers, they do lots and lots of cross-connects in their buildings. Um, they've, they've evolved, and now they do cross-connects between their buildings. Equinix, 250 locations globally. If you're in one Equinix data center, you can ride their own network over to all the other buildings. But they do not help a company sell 700 locations that has nothing to do with their data centers or 2,000 locations that have nothing to do with their data centers. That is something that Switch does on our telecom core side that is unique. We also think it's really important that that purchasing co-op comes into play once you've given 30 to 50% of all your technology need to the cloud, you've lost all your own purchasing power as a corporation. The cloud is an amazing tool, but it is absorbing the world's purchasing power. If Now you don't buy as much gear from Dell because you gave half of it to the cloud, and so if you can't buy at that scale anymore, it's hard to get that kind of pricing. 
or to ask HP for the same pricing as when you were buying 5,000 servers now that you're only buying 2,000. Or, or instead of 50,000, you're only buying 20,000. So by coming to our ecosystems, these exascale environments, and combining your needs in terms of equipment and in terms of connectivity with the other 1,500 clients in each location is creating this as this new pathway towards hybrid cloud where you have an independent environment that allows you to buy yourself, not only at get back to the scale you were at before you gave half of your buying power to the cloud, but to gain scale way past anything you ever could have on your own. There's no corporate data center in the world that's ordering 12 or 15,000 circuits a month for their clients. Switch does that. And guys, these, these are just tools that enhance the ecosystem, but they are very differentiated and unique tools. You know, work with world-class equipment and software vendors, and this one is so important with what everybody's working on. To future-proof an independent, hyper-converged, hybrid corporate platform. And it's one of the things I talk about when we're in all these meetings with all our clients or different things are speaking, is that we you know, bring IAS to the, to the table, IAAS. And people always go, yeah, infrastructure is a service. You guys are uniquely working on ultra-capacity infrastructure as a service. I say, no, no, independence as a service. That's what Switzerland brings to the world. You, you can only do so many things with Amazon if you're an enterprise corporation of Fortune 1000 where you don't get too afraid to be too tied in with IBM, with Oracle, with Google, with Microsoft. They still need some place where they're going, I need to keep my independence at this, you know, still tier four, highly resilient, do these things. And guys, that's, that is why this exascale works. They can close their corporate data center, which is where they keep their independence now. It's where they've been able to not get handcuffed to the big monster tech companies for the last 25 years. Once you close it, because it isn't operationally efficient anymore, where do you put it and maintain that independence? And then again, you know, take that hyper-converged platform that they're all working on, and we'll talk about Edge, because you know, Edge is really about two years from now, and I'll explain why. But take that and start to work, guys, on tools closer to the edge and gain low latency interaction with corporate analytics and IoT. And that, everybody talks about edge. It's all coming. Uh, you know, the, the edge cloud will also be a trillion-dollar edge environment. Um, but that one takes a village, and it also takes 5G to take a few more steps. And with, uh, you guys probably know, AT&T and Verizon just announced they're slowing that down a bit. And it's why we think that... Uh, there's a lot of work to be done on that. We're going to work every day on that for the next 24 months, but I'll talk about it in a minute. That's the starting line is when 5G is ready, not really when anything else is ready. And then, of course, guys, you know, Rob Carter, sleep well at night. Um, so this is as our marketing you know, campaign that we're kicking off this next year, and it is a multi-year marketing campaign that is based on why we created the five primes, why it's not you know, 20 locations, why on purpose it's five exascale locations doing that. And so I think a lot of you know, guys, FedEx was the alpha client on, you know, the fourth cloud evolution alliance. Uh, I'm going to read this quick. It, we're actually doing an event at the end of January with FedEx and Dell and several of the other new partners that are going to be in the fourth cloud alliance. But I'll just read this from Rob. We had seen many data centers, but none like what we witnessed at Switch. The incredible facilities had reached a whole new level of infrastructure resiliency, one we could never come close to matching in our own data centers. In fact, there was a level of infrastructure perfection that we felt no one could match. 
That's when I don't know if you guys have seen Rob talk much this year, or if you do. One of the things he really talks about is we had this vision before I came and saw Switch and met Rob. Of they were going to go 50% to the cloud, and 50% they would keep in their own data centers. And they had 12 data centers in the United States, but two primaries, multi-hundred million dollar tier three facility in Colorado Springs, and also their, their East Coast version of that in Memphis. After Rob come and came and spent some time with me, went back and forth with their team and set a new plan on the table for them, and they're closing all their data centers, and including their big monster, you know, certified multi-hundred million dollar ones they're doing. Half with us out here in Vegas, the other half they're doing out in Atlanta. Um, a bunch of new edge locations that will be coming online in the next, two, as we get ready for this, the next two years you'll see some of what we're doing there. But it, it and this is, guys, I think something to, that everybody needs to understand from a data standpoint is what's coming in the next three years, six years, and nine years out of the ten. You know, almost all equipment refreshes in three-year cycles. And Fortune 1000, let's say there's a 1,000 enterprise data centers. I mean, you know, there's, there's a million enterprise data centers globally, depending on how small you want to get. But let's just use a number like a 1,000. If you look at some of the numbers, the, the, the graph over on the right, in 2017, they're saying, hey, 80% of all of the, you know, the need, the technology need, was being run in an 80 per, in a enterprise data center. And 20% had, at that time frame, had moved into the cloud or co-location. And of course, that's been ramping up, guys, since the beginning. You know, AWS you know, originally founded in 2002, Microsoft, Azure 2010, Google Cloud 2012, really launched in 13. The run rates on that now are getting up to speed, and obviously, see in 20 and 25 where that's going. The projections are that 65% of all the enterprise need will be in the cloud. It'll be in regional colos. Equinix and Corsite all over the world, but only 35% is going to be left in an enterprise data center, and even right now, 56%. Well, here's the problem. When you get to 56%, it's operationally untenable to run an enterprise data center any longer. The costs actually are exponentially the wrong direction. The, di the danger that's really been there up until now is you're going, yeah, well, we have a need. You look kind of at this, this corporate data center. 65% of the need inside it is really a tier two need. It can go to the cloud. Uh, you know, 20% is a tier three need, and those those are the designs. Even J.P. Morgan Chase, who, you know, they their half billion dollar data centers are all certified tier four. Not everything in it needs to be tier four, or did it? They had to make it tier four to meet the high end, the crown jewels of what they're working on that data center. But the other sides are there. That stuff can move out now. 20% that can go to Tier 3. Some of Tier 3, there's arguments that you probably wouldn't put it in the cloud, that need. Uh, so in many ways, that's an indemnification issue. You, you know, losing that data for a bank is so expensive. Uh, Microsoft, AWS, and Google, they're not going to indemnify that. They're, they're going, hey, you need to insure this for a billion dollars in the cloud, saying, yeah, we're never going to go down that path. So they have to keep it somewhere where they maintain it themselves, where they run the gear, where they control the data themselves from an SLA. But 15% of all corporate data centers has a need that's really important, that really needs that high-level resiliency, that needs that safety for the data, that needs to be indemnified correctly and insured. You can't insure it if it's off in the cloud. It's not your data. Obviously, very high-profile loss for one of the banks by one of the employees from one of the clouds leaked that data. 
That was a $90 million fine last year for that data being leaked by one of the cloud employees. So it's impossible to ever indemnify that or know that. If you're a chief security officer, if you're a chief financial officer, there is some stuff you can't give to the cloud. And that stuff also is the most important stuff, the tier four stuff. This is something, though, I, I see people say wrong a lot when you're watching just kind of pundits talk about tech. Because it doesn't mean that out of that 1,000 data centers that 65% of them are closed. It isn't that 650 of the data centers closed. It's out of all 1,000, 65% of it has emptied out. Now, you still have to have the 25 people to run it. You still have to have all the operational costs to do that. But it, it's upside down in terms of operational efficiency. And guys, this is, of course, what we've been getting ready for, you know, in many ways on a lot of my patents from 18 years ago, but certainly the last 10 years is the co-location industry is only Tier 4, and then even past that now, the only Tier 5 data centers for one reason, getting ready to onboard this, guys, 35% of the gear that needs that highly resilient data center space like they have. We're the only place in the world where a bank that has a Tier 4 data center can close it and move to something that's more resilient. We're the only place in the world if you have a tier three data center where you can close it and move it to something that's more resilient. And so again, very differentiated business model, as I think from what our peers are doing. I'm gonna talk about edge for a little bit. Um, again, a forward-looking statement, really have everybody focus on that bottom part. The starting line for the edge cloud, just all things edge is really 24 months out. There's a bunch of interesting things we're all going to be doing along the way, um, but there's a very specific reason for that. Until you can ubiquitously route in a wireless canopy in the same city, the advantages really don't come into play, and that's maybe something also that I don't see the world kind of talk about correctly, and that is how do you move data in a metro environment that quick? People talk about five millisecond interactions, three millisecond interactions, one millisecond interactions, but that's not how the wireless carriers route currently. Until 5G is ubiquitous and they can change the routing to directly in the canopy, you don't really have the value yet. And I'll, I don't know what, you know, if you pick any city where you come from and you would pick a data center and you went just one mile away from it and said, I'm going to go test the latency from my cell phone into that data center one mile away. And you hit ping and it comes back and you're going, okay, it's one mile away, it should be picoseconds, you know, certainly less than one millisecond. And it'll be 46 milliseconds. Because if you're in St. Louis, Verizon doesn't route in the canopy. Let's say the red panels up in the ceiling here are the, are the wireless canopy. They don't route straight up from me over to the back of the room and down. They actually aggregate all their routing in LA and all the carriers do it, or Chicago or New York. You can be six, seven hundred miles away from LA and your wireless phone is gonna go up in the Verizon, go on fiber out to LA, come back and then go to that data center. So until they change those protocols and keep it where I can jump into the canopy, go four miles and jump out of the canopy, the latency story is just not true yet. But, but it is coming, it's just not there today. Anybody leaning into that too soon, they're probably ahead of themselves from a CapEx standpoint. Again, this is the, the fourth cloud alliance in that partnership and where that's going. You know, the five exascale primes, on purpose, five of them, and, and guys, we wouldn't build more primes. It just starts to pull apart the scale. There's no value. 
Every client can get to where they need in these five from the primary side. And then the hundreds of regional edge DC, there's pods or partners, you know, Equinix facilities, Corsite facilities, is really kind of any tier two data center in the world can act as a, you know, a regional edge data center out there with, with all of our clients. If you're FedEx and you need to get to 45 edge locations, you know, we're going to do the prime side and we'll do the on-prem edge pod side, but we will, you know, absolutely be using some of the other partners in the middle. Now, we will be, be building our own regional edge DCs where they don't have them. And guys, and this is some of those right now. So we, these are, this I've been working on this last year and a half. Um, these are all done. All the prototypes are finished. We're actually building currently right now 10 of them to deploy for FedEx next year with the world's only class four system plus system edge data centers. It's the other thing that I just think that gets missed a lot. Everybody's talking about edge, and then they're talking about things like a tough shed at the base of a cell tower somewhere. FedEx cannot take their mission-critical applications and move it from their primary data centers out to the edge and have it be substantially less resilient. In many ways, when you take an application and you optimize it for low latency, you've actually created the, a problem, which is now you can't fail it over to a city 17 milliseconds away because it's made to run in three millisecond latency bubbles. So the optimization is going to be a phenomenal tool. It, it is the, the future of so many things for analytics and IoT. But that edge data center now is just as important as the primary one used to be. And nobody has ever built little tiny chunks of tier four system plus system data centers, and that's what we've designed. So our, our, our mod pods, our mod tens, our mod 15s, all underway, all of them being done. Uh, obviously that's, you know who that one's for. Uh, in, so inside that is a system plus system tier four data center that's fully portable. That's the inside of that. System plus system generators, system plus system cooling, system plus system UPSs that can be deployed anywhere. We'll be doing, like I said, several of those next year, maybe a dozen, depends on timing. The next year more, and then really getting ready to have a product 24 months out, the Mod 10, little modular data center that can be placed on the side of any building, including a CBS at 50 locations if they have room out back. The way to do these things with the latency gets right out to the edge where you need it, but it's still the only system plus system edge data centers ever created. And then our Mod 15s, which are can be really, guys, any number nine cabinets, but the first one we're building here for FedEx in Memphis, uh, that's 13 bays, so it's 40 cabinets, but the land was designed to be able to go up to 100. So we built out the first 40, and they can add the modules on it to go up to 100 cabinets out at the edge. And that'll be finished here by the end of the year. We'll be doing several more of those next year. And so, guys, that's kind of the vision on edge, but I do want to get that off to all the analysts and the investors and going, guys, revenue from that is starting lines 24 months out. It, it, there's, we're not going to put any CapEx in until we're sure that that next step is coming on the 5G side. And then, guys, I'm going to kind of finish up with throwing my hat in the ring on some premium valuation conversation. And we'll start with, guys, just some kind of business model comparisons with two companies that we really admire, and Corsite and Equinix. And I think everybody here on the analyst side knows they have been the premium valuation data center peers over the last 10 years. Um, I think with you know, a bunch of the data that you look at with Switch, our tool sets where we're going, um, that we really have 
an immense value as a corporation in this industry as, as we roll out this next 10 years. So I'll do a quick comparison with just CoreSight. Um, you know, we'll catch and pass CoreSight's revenue next year. Uh, and then, guys, at the hockey stick towards you know, $20 billion market cap that we've been getting ready on for 10 years. And if you weren't getting ready 10 years ago, you're not ready. And even though they can, they'll build more data centers and they'll do their things. Although right now, you know, we're doing 1.3 million square feet under construction. It's been under construction during COVID, you know, every month, working on that stuff, power gateways for years. And of course, it has a stated 56,000 square feet of space coming. Now, we all kind of know why. Um, but even if they gear up now and want to change their model and get going again, it's many, many years till somebody could ever build something like a prime. It's many, many years. That, first of all, I don't think that's actually any of their business models. But even if someone wanted to start, the first ones would be coming online many years from now, five years from now, eight years from now. You have to go acquire the land. You have to do all the permitting. You have to rezone everything to do the real exascale tool set. We also have 3 million square feet of pads under construction currently right now. That, you know, we sold out, you know, Atlanta in four months. I think we're, I think most of our buildings when they open up, and, and that's something that Gabe explained, that almost everything you do in the enterprise side, especially the big enterprise side, they're going to close their data center. They need time to ramp. So all of our stuff has different seasoning time frames, but once they're seasoned, it is very unique what happens to those, but it does take time. So you sell out the building, and then they start to ramp in. And, you know, as quickly as we can, we'll get the next building in, and it'll sell out. And over two, three years, it'll ramp in. And I'll talk about EBITDA in a second, because I think it is the other part that we have that's very different from a value standpoint with anybody else. Um, you know, of course, CoreSight on the 56,000 square feet. Switch, of course, has 750 patents. That's creating what you saw here today. And... We can build tier four data centers at one third the cost of that anybody else in the world has ever done. Because 80% of it is stuff that we OEM designed and OEM manufacture on our own. It also is a huge advantage in terms of guys, the stuff that's going on with can you get product nowadays. And one of the things that's coming in, you know, when you look at the supply chain, all the other tier three data center providers, Equinix, CoreSight, on and on when you're doing that, kind of the same three or four vendors that you get products from. Those are also the same three or four vendors that the cloud buys products from. And probably most of you have heard the stories of the clouds coming in going, they're not going to slow down. Guys, for the next 10 years, they will be going as fast as we're going on the important side of enterprise. They will be going on the tier two, tier three side and absorbing that. But they're coming in now and starting to, going, hey, we're going to buy all your production slots for a year. Well, that's really dangerous for the rest of the data center industry when you're going, oh, I, I wanted that same type of you know, Vibrid air conditioner, that same type of generator. Everything we do is custom made. We don't have a single product that we buy that comes off the shelf. I, I've changed all the designs or we manufacture it. It's 100% just for us. No one can come and take my air conditioner slots because those factories only make them for us. So we have a supply chain advantage over everybody else in the world. And, and then, of course, guys, uh, look at our returns because of the volume we have, 13%, you know, double-digit growth, those type of things. So when you look at this comparison, I mean, let, let's say you were, I don't know, like a tower company. And, and both of these were for sale at the same time. I, 
I think you'd want to pick up the 750 patents. It was just, congratulations, Paul. Because Paul's a good friend, so very excited for what course I announced this morning. And like I said, guys, this is not really anything we're beating up. We love that their, their, their markets that they play in, the things that they do, their business models. Um, when you look at 111.8, 350Ceramac, uh, One Wilshire, guys, the, the big interconnection hubs, they're unique. Those are great businesses and they're great models and that stuff will go for a long time. So I want, but what we're doing is different on purpose than some of that. We think they're going to do great going forward. We think we're going to do really great on a, something that no one else can even do and that they need you know, 300 million square feet of enterprise space still left when you close it, the amount of that that's tier four, we can fill up all five primes five times over and still not pull all the tier four need. So there is an immense market, and currently we're the only ones that can do it. So we are in the right place at the right time. Um, and, guys, I'm going to talk a little bit more on the business model, too, just with EBITDA, because we also understand how important that is to the REIT world. And, guys, talk a little bit. It's just really about scale, and can you get the scale focused? So if you look at, you know, Switch and Equinix, again, Equinix is a phenomenal company. We love those guys. You know, Jonathan's great friends with most of their senior team. You know, Sarah's the best chief product officer in the country, right? <laughs> Are you not mic'd? Oh, you guys can't talk? Oh, this, I like this. So, yeah, yeah, I won't last. So in the United States, though, guys, which will have more product in five cities, you know, than Equinix has in all 14 cities and 91 buildings combined. And so that's, it's just a, a model that's different. And here's how that works. Pretty simple, but sometimes I think it maybe gets overlooked. As, at every one of those locations, you have the operational costs that are sunk. You have security teams. You have mission critical teams. You have networking teams. You have data center teams, sales teams. It gives you a cost of X. Whatever it is, you know, LA is obviously much higher than if you're somewhere else. But when you take that cost of X, Switch only has it five times to do the same amount or, or more going forward square footage and then also vertical footage, 300% more power, and that's really what we sell, um, as, say, something that's in 16 locations. You know, it, it allows us to be perpetually 1.8 times more efficient. But the other thing that happens is you know, kind of our intrinsic pathway to achieving unique EBITDA is once you get two of these exascale buildings filling up in each campus, you've kind of covered the cost of those key personnel, and then every building you add on, we, we're able to move that increment margin of EBITDA. So, you know, we think two, three years from now, and we, you kind of saw it during COVID, because in COVID when we slowed down the company to the point of where we weren't in gross mode, you know, if you look at the, you know, quarter two, we ended up hitting 55% EBITDA. But then now we started the rock and bought Data Foundry and back into growth mode. We're going to, you know, the goal is to stay 50 to 52% EBITDA in high growth more. You know, the, the faster the growth, the more it pushes towards 50 for a short period of time. But once you start to season those buildings, we get a stronger and stronger pathway towards 55% EBITDA. And you guys know when you get out in the ultra-scale side, in terms of locations, 250 locations, it's hard to hit 50% EBITDA just because you have to have these costs in each location. And so, guys, this is, you know, as we get ready for Q&A, this is the 10-year goal for Switch. 
Because you, you, you saw the story today, you saw the tools. If you toured here, you saw the real scale, you saw what we're building outside. You know, we're going to execute on that five primes, 10-year build-up. You know, that's number one, two, and three. You know, really have a, a strong focus on getting to that $20 billion valuation just 10 years from today. So getting ready for the last 10 years, pushing me out with stone up the mountain, not on the other side. Um, of course, for me, I'm going to focus the team on maintaining double-digit growth. Obviously, I, we have the ability to do that, and we're going to focus on that. Um, prepare edge infrastructure products. You guys saw the pieces we're building there. Starting lines 24 months from now, but that, we are going to work on that every day along with these primes. And as the primes fill up and start to launch fourth cloud, we will be doing those tools out at the edge. And then the other piece, and, and Jonathan talked about this some, but is, is grow the fourth cloud evolution alliance. We announced that this year, Switch, Dell, FedEx. Um, you know, again, guys, we're going to be helping FedEx and Dell with all of their telecommunications going forward, with all of their enterprise data center projects going forward. You know, there's another 200 of those companies that we're going to go focus on and help them take that full evolution, the, the bullet points I talked about earlier. And then next year we'll be announcing, really, guys, 10 more partners just inside the Evolution Alliance. And with a focus on when we bring these ultra-scale infrastructure tools out to the market, that we also bring the other partners along for the ride. Almost every meeting that goes forward for any of these teams will include, hey, here's what Dell's gear can do, and here's how that works going forward, and here's how these software stocks, stacks go on top of that. You know, here's the things that we're going to do in terms of bringing FedEx tools. And then, guys, the next partners on that are obviously software security partners, uh, you know, GPU partners, different things that we're working on. So, guys, that is, you know, kind of our 10-year goals on what we're, you know, working on, the 10-year plan. And now, guys, we're going to turn everybody's mics on and jump into an hour of, you know, investor questions. Because I really would like to, you know, get as many questions as we can so that when everybody leaves today, we've hopefully answered them all. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Matt Hines, VP of Investor Relations at Switch, and I'll be moderating today's question and answer session. So if any of you in the room would like to ask a question, please just raise your hand with the number card on your desk. Uh, you can speak into the desk microphone by pressing the talk button, and I'll try to call on you, many, as many of you as possible. Uh, see one in the back, number 16. All right. Uh, you can hear me, right? Okay, yep. Great. Uh, one part uh, that I'd like to get a little bit better idea on is just the switch and how it ties into the international domain here. Um, could you give us a little bit more color on how those uh, those aspects are progressing so far? I know you guys do have some international interests, but just any other color you can give us on that side. Yeah, and I think, guys, it's uh, interesting enough on like the two-year two plan and EDGE, uh, because EDGE has really unique tools globally. It's not just here for the U.S., but we, we are going to focus, guys, for the next three years on this next level of onboarding the United States-based enterprise data centers that are closing. Uh, I, I believe that that is the most unique and beneficial market in the world over the next three years as they, they only close their corporate data centers once. They've been in place for 20 years. Once they close that, they have to pick somewhere to go. And in almost all those cases, if you look at our big clients that do that, they are signing 10-year deals because they're going, hey, I'm going to move my corporate data center. This is the crown jewels. I need to put it somewhere and not move it again. That, that is not space you want to move every three years. 
Uh, I mean, if you look at the primes, we call ourselves the primes because we host the primaries for the enterprise companies. If you look at our, you know, one of our big media partners, that's, they've been here 18 years. You know, they closed their corporate data center in the West Coast. They moved here. They've been here every day for 18 years, and they, do, they don't want to move anything again. So that's, that is the focus for right now. Next three years, onboarding as many of the U.S.-based enterprise data centers that are closing, because who's ever in the front on that, I think you end up having those cores for decades. I just don't think they move once they close the big corporate one. But then after that, guys, absolutely, we'll kind of get back to looking at international, not only with our big products, but guys, international with our edge products. But I, I would say that that focus is really three years away international, two years away on edge in the U.S. and start to roll those pieces out, uh, three years away from when we start to go, okay, internationally, what are we going to do? Now, we actually get brought into those questions quite a bit and pulled into those questions. So at any given moment, some of our partners are going, hey, I need you to come now. And then we would probably go. But in, in terms of what our focus is up here on stage, it's, it would be to start to engage with that three years out. Really focus on this enterprise need now. Number 35. Hi, um, Richard Cho, JP Morgan. Um, you laid out your build plans and the need for the space, but what gives or what should we take away in terms of the confidence in the revenue coming through? You have a good customer backlog. It seems like there will be a lot of demand, but given the numbers you talked about and the timing, it, it seems like you have a high amount of confidence in getting to those numbers. And then also on the sales side, what is it going to take to actually sign those customers and get them into the buildings? And so, uh, of course, guys, uh, you know, we wouldn't be building this fast if we didn't think that we, I don't build it and they will come. That's never been a practice which has. You know, we always go, no, we're going to build just in time. It's why I designed all the modules into the data center so you don't ever strand CapEx building too far ahead. But in the last five years, every single data center we've built sells out before we can build the next one. And that was, you know, three years ago, we really went, we have to, we're going to get ahead of this stuff. We're going to get to the point where we have these 3 million square feet of pads. But on the enterprise side, with so many of our clients, and guys even on things that aren't hyperscale where they're taking the whole building. Obviously, if Microsoft wants the whole building, you have to get that done and it gets signed and then you start with permitting and it, you know, it takes two years to get that finished. Nobody really wants to go that far out. You don't find, if you look at Atlanta, um, Many times on the calls, the analysts were going, you know, how much of it's pre-sold? How much of it's pre-sold? How much of it's pre-sold? And we're going, guys, we're not, we, we're not worried about that. We're building the only tier four data center product in the world. When it comes online, they'll want it. And, and the enterprise guys tend to go quicker. So, again, we're very confident that that's going to come. Atlanta opened up, and even though everybody's going, you didn't have any pre-sales, it sold out in four months. And, you know, just in the last two months, we've had about, 30 megawatts of deals at the campuses, guys that we couldn't take, that just show up and go, I need this and I need it right now. And you go, guys, we're frustrating, but we're, we're, we have the largest data centers in the world and they're sold out. You know, the, the G, this GPU partner just took the last 20 megawatts in the building and so we're next. So I, I think we have pent up demand at every single campus as we open those buildings. I don't expect that we'll have a lot. We don't really go out and even look that hard for pre-sales. It's really more focused about getting that product done and then, guys, opening it up to the world and that. Now, of course, Jonathan has many, many, you 
30, 40 years of experience in terms of guys putting together those pathways. So for, we, we have a little bit of an interesting story, and most of you know that. People say, hey, what about your sales teams? What about you know, the channel? What about the things you're going to do? And you know, I'll say I founded Switch 22 years ago. We've looked at kicking those off and, and building really you know, world-class, you know, go out and find sales organizations. Although every single time we open a building, it's sold out with, if I didn't have any salespeople. Because it's just, guys, it is the right product at the right time. It is the product that everybody needs from an enterprise standpoint. Of course, now that we're far enough ahead where we're doing millions of square feet and we're going to get ahead of it, guys, that is, of course, I've, I've known Jonathan for 12 years. That's why we brought him in now. All of us together up here are going to work on that, but certainly we're going to empower him for any tools and any people he needs to go out and, and get those sales moving along. So I, I, I have a feeling, guys, that we're going to open this next data center in Vegas and, of course, be really disappointed that it's completely sold out before the next one opens. And so it just we're going to continue down that path. I, was it, and then you had a second part to that. No, that's it. Thank you. No, we're okay. Okay, great. I'll take one now from the virtual audience. Um, regarding the five-year outlook, are you implying with the revenue guidance that you will remain at double-digit top-line growth in each of the next five years? And what is the expectation for AFFO per share growth over the five-year horizon? I'll jump in and take that one. We stated that our goal is to remain in a double-digit growing company in terms of our compound annual revenue growth. But I was very specific in saying it's not linear. It hasn't been linear for the 22 years that we've been in operations, yet we've been growing at a compound double-digit rate um, because compound means over time. So if you look at our build plan and, and those fill rates, you can get an idea of how each individual year is going to have some variability in its growth rates. But over time, we expect to continue to lead the industry in double-digit growth rates. What was the second part? The second part was the expectation for AFFO, oh, for per, AFFO share. per share. Well, we talked about our AFFO growth and our expectation. Um, we specifically didn't talk about the per share uh, number because we're going through a, a, an awful lot of, uh, of change right now with a reconversion and whether or not we will issue equity in the future is still something that we're looking at. So I didn't really want to provide a per share number um, because right now we think we can continue to build on our growth path without any additional equity. Um, but depending on the REIT structure, there may be a, a change to that, uh, to that uh, philosophy or if we decide to accelerate some of our growth based on customer demand. So we wanted to lay out that AFFO number rather than a, a specific per share number. But if you look at our history, you know, we've led the industry in per share value creation because we haven't had to issue any equity since our IPO. We still have the same number of shares outstanding that we went public with. Number nine. Uh, thanks. Uh, Brett Feldman from Goldman Sachs. i got two questions. Uh, first one, Rob, you were talking earlier about how scale is really a, a matter of density. Um, one of the deals that was announced today, they were talking about scale in terms of breadth of telecom infrastructure and the integration between mobile infrastructure and data centers. I'm just curious for your thoughts on that and whether you think that's going to be part of the switch strategy at some point down the road. Um, and then I want to come back to this point you've made about how it seems like you're expecting 
something of an acceleration in enterprises closing their data centers, or maybe something different about what's going to happen over the next few years versus what we've seen so far. And I just wanted to come back and really understand why you think this might be a different period, why it might create a bit more opportunity. Is it just the inefficiency you see in the corporate data centers? And then the, the last part of that question would be, should we expect that the incremental sale could be bigger now if you really do have a wave of large enterprises deciding it's now time to close these, these data centers? Thank you. And so I'll answer the second one first and then go back to really kind of data center tower interaction, edge interaction, I think, in what you're talking about in the first question. But guys, absolutely something is happening and it is the cloud. And it's the cloud absorption rate physically in an enterprise data center. So, I mean, guys, if you just think of anything that you do in the world, the banks, if they have these huge corporate headquarters and now they're not going to bring back half of the people, I mean, the scale works with anything. It certainly works with data centers. It works with that. But if you're not going to bring back half the people to the, the headquarters, they're going to sell. They're not going to just leave half of it sitting there empty. You, there's, from an operational standpoint, it's just untenable. You just can't run it that way. It's, it's such a loss of, you know, really money going forward. Well, that's what's happening in every enterprise data center. It, again, I think sometimes the numbers that come out in the industry, they don't explain that correctly. It isn't that 50 or 60 percent of all, really, equipment, guys, because it's all, it's all the same. It's, it's a cabinet with equipment, with software, and data goes in and out. And whether it's in your own data center, or whether it's in a co-location data center, or whether it's in Microsoft's cloud data center, it's, it's that same amount of gear. It's that same amount of software. Most ways for workload usage uses the same amount of power. It doesn't matter where it is. Well, now that they're all moving to the cloud, and that's the part where I think maybe, because the cloud, people think cloud doesn't actually float around up in the sky. The gear is physically located in a million cabinets, all owned and run by Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. And so in my corporate data center, I've moved half to the cloud. That gear now will never need to get backfilled or replaced. And now I'm sitting here with this, you know, really large-scale environment where half of it, or guys, on its way now, 60 70% of it. The tipping point has happened. It really started, it, we were pretty close before COVID. Um, we had three or four companies that wanted to kind of do what, FedEx did with the Alpha. Um, on, the, on a good note, we had the other two wait. We think we'll be, obviously next year we'll start to talk about who's coming next. But when they're closing 12, when you go, I'm, I'm going to close it all. I'm going to give half to the cloud, and I'm going to close all 12 of my data centers, 10 which are, you know, whatever size, but then the two big ones. How are they doing resiliency or running redundancy in the United States? East Coast, West Coast. Here's our big primary data center here. Here's our big primary data center here. We're going to close them. So I, I think that inflection point is literally just occurring in the last few years. So I do think it is a moment in time that's new, and I think it's unique. And that's again, we, we expected that, and we've been getting ready for that, and I think we're going to find that in many ways some of the stuff with COVID and some of the stuff with the cloud, you know, now that everybody's working remotely, everybody's finding out that that works really well, moving, moving applications remotely, making them work better at different latency levels. Um, it even helps more stuff go to the cloud. And then that just makes it, like I said, it's unnecessary to have a corporate data center any longer. In addition, if you do keep it, you've lost all your purchasing efficiencies. Because, guys, 
when half your stuff goes to the cloud, half of your telecom need went to the cloud too. Now you, now you can't negotiate as strong with Lumen. You can't nego negotiate as strong with Verizon because you're buying way less scale. And all 1,000 of the Fortune 1,000 are buying less scale in telecom, less scale in equipment, less scale in software. We're the one place where you can come and join the cooperative. And guys, not only buy telecom uniquely compared to anybody else in the world, but the Force Cloud Alliance, that evolution will be to the point where you'll be able to buy Dell gear together with 1,500 clients going forward, which you just can't do anywhere else. Because you have to physically be in one node. They'll start to build... Cloud gets very complicated when you talk about hybrid where, hybrid inside the data center. Dell's got gear in the data center. They've got tri-redundancy zones on the same campus. You can come in and buy gear from Dell, but then share that core with Dell with 500 other clients as long as it's on the same location and you have picosecond latency to that. We, we just believe all those interactions are coming. It, you know, and They all exist in the cloud now, but they exist for them. This is the independent place where that same type of scale moves forward. And then your second question, I think, is maybe talking a little bit about Corsite and Tower partnerships. Again, guys, I think that's all, it all becomes hybrid. You know, there, there, there won't be, there will not just be public cloud. There will only be hybrid cloud. You know, because that last, when we were looking at those slides, that last percentage that the bank just cannot give to the public clouds for an indemnification reason, they're going to want to do it themselves. And so they'll be moving out to those edge locations, uh, regional locations, you know, guys, course, especially core sites, interconnection zones, one Wilshire, you know, stuff. That stuff's always really valuable. And then taking that in L.A. and connecting that to the towers in L.A. and then working on, again, what I was talking about with 5G routing. You know, 5G just has way better tool sets for how data interacts, how you can separate it, how you can secure it, how you can route it, how you can move it. I think it's a. I I think that is a, a good play for them, and in many ways, guys, we'll be doing that same thing. But there's nothing that we would do that doesn't actually interact with that. We do have the only real primes. You know, there, there's prime data centers and regional data centers and edge data centers, and then on-prem cabinets. All four of those will continue to go forward. We'll never do all of it. We'll we'll do in many ways, the front and the back side of that at, at scale. And so I, I said, I, I think that's a good acquisition for, you know, American Tower, and I think that that actually is a good place for CoreSite to go, because they have something unique, just like Equinix has their unique interconnects in a city. Um, I, Rob Carter would have never closed the FedEx data centers and moved it to either one of those companies. FedEx uses them in a lot of cities; they know them very well. That is not a place to close your enterprise data center and move a primary. But it is, a, but they they'll use them all over the world. FedEx will use Equinix in 30 locations around the world, and, and always will. So I, I think those interactions at the edge make a lot of sense. Uh, I believe number seven a question. Sorry, I didn't know it was number seven. Um, Colby Sinusal from from Cowan. Uh, Rob, nice to meet you. Um, Appreciate all the, the comments, and, you know, it seems, I thought your comments in particular when you compared yourself to Equinix and, and Coresight was, was interesting, and, you know, I got a sense of frustration perhaps from you in terms of maybe where the valuation of the companies has been or the stock relative to those over the, the last few years. And I was sitting here, I was thinking about it, and you've actually done a good job, in my opinion, knocking a lot of those things off that I, I at least had issue with. Um, your Class C shares, you guys got rid of those with a 10-to-1 voting before. 
You've actually gone and improved the disclosures, I think, under math quite a bit, which I appreciate. You've also gone and expanded into more markets, which I thought was important from a diversification perspective. You've gone and increased your leverage. And, you know, ultimately now you're looking to become a REIT. The one thing that I still think is lacking actually is you. You're the biggest shareholder of the company. You clearly have strong views on the company. Your management team cites your name quite often when referencing their intentions for doing certain things. But you're nowhere to be found. You're not on earnings calls. You don't go on the conference circuit. Do you think that that's something that's important? Do you think that that's something that needs to change? Because I would think as a standard company that that's something that should be, we should have better access to you. So that's question number one. Question number two is on the TRA, the $280 million liability. You mentioned that there's a precedent of getting that settled for a significantly lower. I'm curious if you have any more specifics on that because that's a pretty big nut that investors might have to absorb if, in fact, you're transitioning to a REIT. And then lastly, as it relates to your revenue growth, I'm just curious, how much of that is coming from the core product in terms of potentially expecting an acceleration, maybe in that growth rate, potentially coming from power as a pass-through, or maybe even these edge data centers, opposed to really what I consider to be the core business? Thank you. First of all, I'll jump in the first one. So since, of course, I'm sitting here talking to you, we heard you loud and clear, Colby, on the calls, but where's Rob? And I think your first question, though, was are we frustrated with the valuation? And frustration is not the word. I think, you know, when you guys come and tour here, though, we obviously know what we're doing every day. It's hard for all of you to know that. And so we're fairly patient, and we've been fairly patient. And when we came out, we went down, you know, kind of two of the things you talked about. The banks were going, hey, here's two things we recommend. Not things we really asked for. One of them was the Class C shares. They went, hey, Rob, as a founder with, you know, hundreds of patents, you're unique. You can get these class. And I'm saying, well, why do I need them? And they were going, well, activist investors could come in and take the company, and you don't want that in the first few years. So as a founder, when you're taking a company forward, you go, okay, well, that sounds like that makes sense. What's interesting, though, is then people are like, oh, he's got those, and he's going to control the company. Of course, you know, the Class C shares, I just gave them up on purpose because I never used them once. You know, I never had a single vote with those that wasn't the same vote that it would have been with majority with every other shareholder. You know, so we really understand, and certainly I understand my fiduciary duty to every shareholder. Of course, being one of the biggest shareholders myself, we're all aligned really well. Everybody on this stage is aligned really well. They're all owners. And so not frustration as much as going, at some point in time, they'll get it. Also, a lot of my focus in terms of, you know, talking about what I'm doing and actually going and doing it is a little, you know, just something that just personally to me. You guys don't have to guess what I've been doing. You know, the 700 patents are 99% just me. The business vision, that's mine. All these new products are mine. The cloud is mine. The edge, I designed them all. They're mine. So in some ways, I go, hey, my job is to go really actually create a differentiated company. I know lots of CEOs that are on the calls, and they talk. You know, they read the script. But then when they leave, they're not going and inventing system plus system data centers. They're not working on alliances with the largest companies and the C-level relationships with those. So I still believe that is my primary role as CEO, chairman, and founder. Now, that being said, 
um, I'm going to start to do more of this because it, it always is. I do this a lot with, with the biggest companies in the world. It's just I, I don't go off and stand on stage at an event with other people to do that because I'm really focused on changing the future, not talking about what I'm doing today. So that's what, but, but it's why I'm here today. To go, no guys, I, you know, I work 12 hours a day every day, and you know, the goal for us that we just stated today is to get through. You know, I want to take the next 10 years, and you know, get to that 20 billion dollar valuation. And, you know, my job is to lead this team and set those goals and do that. That being said, you know, one of the other questions that I got out in the hallway earlier today was, well, with Coresight, you know, and, and the stuff that's going on with Cyrus One, would you ever be for sale? And you go, well, guys, we're a, we're a public company. We're always for sale. You guys can jump on Robinhood right now and buy as much of us as you want. Um, but, guys, we, we really, you know, whatever maximizes the value for all the shareholders, including all of us on stage, we understand our fiduciary to that really well, and we will keep all those options open. If something comes along... Absolutely, we'll be open to that. If it's, but if we just stay here for 10 years and build something no one else has and really hard to come and compete with us on, like we really have unique quality tool sets that took a decade to make, we're now going to take those to fruition. And so um, hopefully all those other boxes were checked and that today's the beginning of checking more of those other boxes. If, if you want me twice a year to read the script, or maybe I will. If you just want to come to my conference and none of my competitors, that's fine, too. It, 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 deal. Uh-oh, oh, this was oh, recorded, yeah. Rob. Hold on. on <laughs> might have some injections to that in the crowd. No, and he, he had a three-part question, though. So what were uh, – I think the other one was – was on revenue growth yeah. and how much of the revenue growth is going to come from the telecom versus other parts of our business. The telecom cooperative has been very interesting because it's actually been keeping pace with our co-location revenue growth, which – if for those in this room and, and, and online that know the telecom business, telecom is a declining price product. So the fact that telecom has been keeping up with the co-location growth over the period of time that it has means we're selling more and more and more capacity. Because as people renew their 10-gig circuits today, they're going to be priced less than it was three years ago. That's just the nature of the industry. So you have to run faster on that telecom hamster wheel just to keep up with the same growth that we're seeing in co-location. So we're really happy with the telecom growth that we've seen over time, and we expect that growth to continue. We're modeling, you know, when we think about our future, we think the telecom cooperative is going to continue to grow on pace with our co-location growth. But that means that we're going to be selling a whole lot more capacity. Um, So hopefully that answers that. As far as power pass-throughs, you know, we look at our co-location and power as our co-location revenue, not specifically as two separate revenue streams because we're not in the wholesale market. We're not building large buildings for a single client with a power meter and then metering that power for that client separately. It really is baked into the way we sell co-location. So, again, we expect co-location growth to be double digits over the long run. We expect telecom growth to be double digits over the long run. And, you know, just to jump back to your first question on Rob about, you know, are we frustrated with the price of the stock? That certainly wasn't the reason for the comparison that we're laying out today. It's really to show that these are two companies that have been admired in the industry for a long time. We admire in the industry and have had the premium valuation in the sector. We want to make sure that people are understanding what Switch does, how we compare in terms of key metrics, because we believe very firmly that we should be included in that 
in that premium valuation category. We have the best product on the market. We have the, the best metrics on the market compared to the peers. And we have a 10-year runway that I don't think anybody in the industry can match. So that really was the purpose. Just quickly on the TRA. Oh, and on the TRA, the TRA is currently as a uh, Q3 is sitting at about $360 million in nominal value. But, of course, that TRA doesn't, there's no payments on that TRA until Switch can actually get a benefit from, uh, from the step up in tax basis. And since we're not a taxpayer today, we've never made a, a payment on that TRA, which would be expected to pay out over, in a typical upsea, the TRA would get paid out in a 15 to 20 plus year period. It's a very long tail. So there have been a number of upsea companies that have negotiated a buyout of that TRA liability in the, uh, in the 40% uh, uh, range of value for that TRA because of the time value of money factor. They're really looking at a pay payment stream of 15 to 20 years. We're not saying that's the direction we're going to go. We're still evaluating all of our options on the TRA. There are a number of things to look at, um, but we are confident that we'll find an acceptable solution for that TRA. Yeah. Okay. Quickly highlight Gabe's last point. I mean, there is one option is to buy out the TRA. There are a multiplicity of options and hybrids of options, and we have not landed on the one that we're going to select yet. Um, we're doing a lot of financial analysis with respect to that, as well as talking to the lead TRA holders. Um, so we will have some more announcements on that, but it's going to take some time to evaluate that. Regarding the sales, we often get asked about the sales team that we have, and over the time that Gabe and I have been on the conference calls, you've heard us talk about the expansion of that sales team and the enhancement of that sales team. The sales team that doesn't get asked about as much but really deserves a lot of credit is the telecommunications sales team because they do have a declining price product, and yet they are growing as fast or faster than our co-location product, which means that they are selling a tremendous volume of services, and they have managed year over year over year to keep pace with our co-location sales. As we continue to build out the sales team on both the telecom side and on the co-location side, um, we will increase both our geographic reach as well as the avenues of sales that we are going to do. As that complexity grows, it is important that we have people such as Jonathan King to lead that initiative and make sure that we are doing it in an effective and efficient and cohesive manner. So we're really pleased to have Jonathan on to lead the next evolution in our sales group. Okay, I think that's a great lead-in to one of the uh, virtual questions I had on, on sales. Um, and as it relates to Jonathan's presentation and the opportunities for Switch, how do you see the sales team evolving and what sort of changes are needed to achieve this vision for the sales team and to drive revenue opportunities for the company? Testing, are you on? <laughs> Need Rob's? There you go. Uh, that was Mr. Hello? All right. You are. Sorry about that. Um, as I covered in my presentation, I've been here 75 days as of today. So my first 90 days I really focused on, and I had some familiarity with the company industry, focused on looking at the systems and the processes and where we are. And I think others, having known the company, um, tend to boil it down to sort of first looking at, well, how many salespeople are doing what quota and doing this? And that is absolutely a vital component. But the first thing is to look at really the value, the process, the systems, 
the ecosystem surrounding it. And so that's really where I focused my first 90 days and working with this great team to you know, hear them out, understand it. We're working towards a sales kickoff uh, early next year where we can be deliberate about where we're setting targets, the objectives and key results that we want to achieve with them. And I think then it's looking at mine and taking into account the ramp that we see of capacity coming online, that slide that Rob showed, all the builds. So what really what I'm focused on in my opening act is understanding and engaging and looking at the systems and process. And then I think what you'll see is in this ramping next year, really with emphasis the second half of next year, the beginning of the following, is being online and ready with channel, with technology partnerships. How do we get repeatable leverage that doesn't cost us, that doesn't add cost burden so that we can predictably know how to scale and open facilities? And, you know, that's really been my focus. I mean, I mapped it out on that slide where I shared really everyone at Switch sells. That's been a mantra of Rob's ever since I've known him. And, um, you know, I'm embracing that, but then looking at what new can we bring. And that's where I talked about uh, vertical campaigns, in engaging channel, engaging in partnerships. And, um, you know, I, I think you'll see more, um, you know, over the coming quarters in that regard. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, number 29. Thanks, guys, for doing this. Um, Taylor Harrington. Uh, question on actually follow up with you, Jonathan, on the sales sure. side. I'm curious. I, I think the channel is pretty small for your, you guys today. I think it's something like 10% or something like that. How big can that be um, in terms of expanding the funnel for you? And then I'm also curious your, your thoughts on hyperscale strategy. You guys mm -hmm. talked a lot about unlocking the enterprise opportunity as the corporate data center gets outsourced. That makes all the sense in the world. And that's a high ROIC business. Obviously, hyperscale is a different business and something that you've done less of curious if that changes. And then I have two follow-ups. One's kind of just on the structural churn profile of the business. Obviously, you have pure leading churn. I'm curious what that churn looks like if we, I think Gabe outlined the 10-year vintage um, kind of core portfolio and the returns on that. What does the churn look like in that portfolio? Is it kind of similar to that 1% annual churn? And, and how should we think about the ability to sustain kind of that um, industry-leading churn? And then the last piece is just how, how should we think about the um, attachment rate of connectivity revenue in your new geographies, so when we think, or your newer geographies. So when we think about Atlanta or Grand Rapids, to date, have you seen kind of the same attachment rate as you've, as you've seen in Las Vegas, and, and how should we think about that going forward? And, and so I'm gonna take that one first, and then let, let you get those. Yep. And so one of the things, guys, I think is also important, you know, Colby, when you're saying maybe, hey, you're frustrated with the valuation, you go, no, not frustrated, but I, if we can get you guys all the data, I think the math starts to show that you know, there's some fairly interesting things going on here at Switch, and now also maybe the, the REIT conversion was part of that. We came out as a tech company, because when you, when you walk through here, I think you guys notice that we do see ourselves more as a technology company. It's just because all our peers were stuck in the REIT bucket. Uh, we, we realized three years in going, oh, it doesn't matter to us. We'll, we'll move down that path and then just continue to be who we are just you know, in that matrix. Um, but in terms of connectivity or, guys, just the seasoning of any of our sites, um, this enterprise client workload is massive. Um, so we talked about the fact that we're going to, you know, that SwitchNow is going to be working with, you know, all the telecommunications for FedEx. Uh, so just currently that's 7,000 locations that we're working on 
tripling the capacity at each location, working with two dozen different carriers, because eventually that goes globally on how that all comes in from a resiliency standpoint. And so that stuff does take time. And so with it, you know, Atlanta sold out in four months. Now they're going to ramp into it, though, for 20 or, or 25 months. The connectivity will do the same a bit. As, as you turn on those co-location pieces, then you start to fail over different zones and different regions in the U.S. with, with telecom. So it's just all of it moves, guys, in, in chunks a little different than certainly Wall Street likes to look at every four months. And that is just one thing I think that, you know, our, 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 the growth of anything in cloud doesn't really do this. The clouds do because they're just it's so many little pieces it moves. But when we're moving enterprise data center, it will move in these big, you know, chunks when that moves going forward. And so will the telecom side. So I think it's just a little more blocky than maybe Wall Street likes. Although I'd love to try to get that on the table to understand that that's the reality. If we open three buildings in the fourth quarter two years from now, clients will start to move in, but not a single one of them you know, won't generate any revenue. And then 12 months later, they'll be at that next phase where they're really ramping in, and then 12 months after that on that final phase. Because as they're closing their enterprise data centers, they are literally moving the heartbeat of a $100 billion company from where it's been sitting for 20 years to where it's going to sit for the next 20 years. And they're, they're just, that takes a little time. And so I just might want to point that out, but then Jonathan, I'll hand off on this question to you. Yeah, so I'll, I'll touch on channel, hyperscale. I think Rob covered your second. You had four questions. Um, you, and the churn channel, percent. hyperscale, and then uh, churn percent. I might pass that back to Gabe. So I'll cover channel and hyperscale. So on channel, I highlighted that in my slide as an area of opportunity because I do think roughly the 10% you reference, that's a, you know, a, a yardstick, is that we can produce more. I think the, net, the reason that it isn't there is you have a great product that's sold very rapidly. So now that we know and are making the investment decisions to scale over the next decade, it's all, you hear this term product market fit. I think it's product channel fit. So we have an opportunity to be deliberate about finding channel partners who are fit for our product that bring value to the client equation, right? So who can we work with that can help with that data center close life cycle? How can they help improve the client experience? And there'll be multiple different players. And so I think that there is an opportunity there. I think if you look at some of the players having worked with Equinix's channel and developed um, multiple times partnership offerings with them and other players, I think there is upside for us. And it, it takes time. Channel takes time, but, but that's what why next year is really a building year and looking at how we can expand that. And it's an area that I think is pretty exciting. On the hyperscale piece, we have hyperscale clients today. I think this is another area, and I might let you know Rob weigh in here a bit too. Uh, we are in discussions and, and have interest from hyperscalers uh, all the time. And I think what we've done has been disciplined about really the amazing operation that we have, the multi-tenant scale that we have. And we've made that, we've had that work for to meet hyperscale needs. I think there's probably an envelope of their workloads where that will increase. I think we're also open to having discussions around other models. How could we co-innovate? And I think the opportunity we have in Reno is very unique. You know, that's where um, in, in June I had a chance to visit Rob there. Remember that, that trip? And 
the same kind of feeling I had as shared earlier when I visited this, this facility in 2010. I hadn't been to Reno before and I saw Reno and that kind of building envelope lets us do things with facilities like this, which have the efficiency and, and the kind of EBITDA production that's been discussed. But it, we also have other opportunity there as well. And I think that's where you know, that combination is, is something where we, we are having very interesting talks and I think there's additional upside. Um, I don't and guys, I think if you saw on the slide where we just did, you know, here's an example of 11% growth 10 years out. It gets us to 11 million square feet and a 20 plus billion dollar valuation. There's still 5 million square feet not used at those primes. You know, that, that was 11 million out of 16 million. So the 5 million square feet is currently there. And I think a lot of what Jonathan's looking at doing and it, with the cloud providers um, or, or the, the, the top 20 multi-megawatt users of data center space, because we're, we're absolutely going to be working with those groups uh, and, and you may find that that last five million that isn't sitting on our model folds in way sooner for a different use. Um, something else that's happened, I think you guys may know that, is that all three of the clouds are looking at new tool sets for deploying that isn't just the 20 megawatt chunks. And, and because they need endless 20 megawatt chunks, they're gonna keep doing that. Um, but they can only get that in so many locations. And there hasn't been enough building going on during COVID, you know, we're, we're unique. And so there's all these locations, we're not gonna have it. I think they're all coming out with new 2.5 and 5 MVA chunks that they're gonna start working with. And that stuff that you know, we will do a lot of work with those groups. Uh, I, I mean, on this campus, you know, Google has a tri-availability zone here in Las Vegas. It's the only one in the world located on a single campus because each building is tier five on its own. They can do that. But, you know, it's thousands of cabinets in three buildings in this location and a tri-availability zone this year. So, you know, we already have Google, Amazon, and Microsoft as clients. We have those relationships. And, and, you know, in talks with them now. And I, I think, especially those smaller chunks, we like those smaller chunks because it leaves room for, you know, the 800 enterprise clients to come in and then plug into it rather than just block the whole building from what we really see as the scale use and the cooperative use. And you also see the public clouds in a kind of uh, competition to extend their offering into bare metal or private cloud deployments. So each of them have their own version. Google, it's Anthos, Azure. You have Azure, you know, Arc, you have Outpost, AWS. So over time, everything that we just discussed are options, but there's also now them as a software operator, as you know, an, an offering where it has to be in a dedicated environment in a corporate data center. And as we discussed, that envelope comes in with us. It, that pre presents additional upside. They're a technology partner that we can work with as well. And with regard to the question on the attachment rates on our telecom, I think I showed a slide in, uh, during my section that showed how much faster the telecom cooperative revenue is growing at the new primes um, because that attachment rate is, is, is growing that much faster as those customers deploy. Currently, we have over 80% of our customers that take advantage of our telecom cooperative in one form or another. Um, obviously, the telecom uh, cooperative is bigger here in Las Vegas because it has uh, more longevity and has a larger base of clients. 
And when clients go into the newer primes, many times they already have existing contracts with telecom providers. And as those come up for renewal, that's when they start taking advantage of the telecom cooperative. So you see that really ramp up uh, quite steeply over time. And as far as churn, you know, we think about churn in terms of customer churn uh, primarily. And, you know, we, we, we virtually have no churn. I mean, customers don't leave switch. The churn that we have typically comes when occasionally one of our 1,300 customers doesn't make it and goes out of business or two of our 1,300 customers merge. Um, but over the last 20 years that we've been in operations, technology changes. And that means the need for workloads change and where those workloads are handled most efficiently changes. And so over those 20 years, we've had customers move workloads into switch. We've had workloads move into the cloud. We've had those same workloads move back to switch because of technology changes over that period of time. And that's always going to happen. And you know, we, don't, we don't fear the cloud. We don't fear technology change. We think just the opposite. The hybrid cloud is the winning solution. And hybrid cloud really means when that cloud component is working seamlessly with the enterprise component that isn't located in the cloud. And the best way to do that is to either have that cloud component on our campus or next to our campus where it can be directly connected with picoseconds of latency in a highly secure environment. We think that's the winning solution. We think the cloud companies agree with that. So we're not uh, opposed to working with the hyperscalers at all, but it has to make economic sense. What we're really not interested in doing, you know, digital's a wonderful company, and they make great margins, and they've had a phenomenal run you know, in terms of wholesaling to the cloud but it's a completely different economic model. You can't build what we build here and wholesale that at the prices that the cloud needs in order to make their economic model work. It's a different vision, a different model, but you absolutely need that cloud component to make the hybrid ecosystem work. And that's where scale matters. We have such massive scale at each of our five campuses, we can give 20% to the cloud and still not degradate the yield from that campus. In fact, it creates a win-win because the cloud is able to connect to our hundreds of enterprise customers that also need to connect to the cloud. So it really is a win-win. Uh, yes, number 24. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, Brendan Lynch from Barclays. Uh, just to follow up on that, that last concept there, you've talked a lot today about your differentiated engineering and construction capabilities. What would you say the opportunity is for doing some sort of contract building for the cloud providers who are looking to build their own VCs or otherwise li licensing your technology? And so, guys, it's, you know, wide open. And, you know, if you saw my edge data centers that we just finished up here, if you look at the product sets, we have something we call a Mod 250. Um, the big super naps are the mod, they're 250 feet wide by any length, and they can be a million square feet, but they're the big you know, the big super naps. Um, a Mod 100, which is a 100-foot wide version of that same design. Those of you that toured and saw NAP 12 right outside when you left, NAP 12 is a Mod 100. Um, and then, of course, now we have the Mod 15 and the Mod 10 and the Mod Pod. So we've been building those product sets for years with the plan of starting to offer that out to our clients. And I think you'll start to see quite a bit more of that starting towards the second half of next year. When we talk about our, you know, if you look at FedEx, they're closing their corporate data centers. Um, so they're going to close the corporate data center. We're building that one in Memphis because they can't move everything out. 
it's the one thing that you know, I'm going to close my corporate data center, but I still would, I'm going to close these 600 cabinets and move those, but I, now I still need a little data center to do that. So I think a lot of our products will be used. We'll start to build more and more and more out, out at the edge in different sizes. Um, one of our other partners that we're looking at, it's a name all of you guys know, uh, 12 data centers. They're talking about closing them, but they're going, hey, can you come and look at this location? We'd like you to build a Mod 100, though, here on our campus. We'll close the other two big data centers, but keep this really high-density, efficient one out here at the edge. So that product set is absolutely available, and I think over the next 10 years, you'll start to see more and more and more of the tools because it's, it's, it's all moving to the hybrid A to Z. That map I pulled up that shows the five primes and all the regional data centers and then all the little edge data centers, if they're closing them, they actually need to backfill some of those. So I, I think we'll be building that. And in terms of hyperscale, um, we have those conversations all the time. I think that in the next few years, you'll start to see where we'll pull the trigger on those and start to you know, just purpose build for some of our clients in fairly large data center space. In many ways, we do. When you look at Tajarina 1, it's 1.3 million square feet. The three largest clients there you know, have more space in that building than 98% of all the co-location data centers in the world. I mean, they're that big just inside the building, but it might as well be their own building because they've taken that big of a chunk. So all of that's on the table. Yeah, I'll go with one uh, from the virtual audience here regarding renewable energy. Um, is the 100% renewable energy coverage based on power purchase agreements or switch owned and operated renewable facilities? And what percentage of renewable power supply is located on site at your primes? So a couple things on that. The first one is that we have signed PPAs. We're not using our capital to build these power stations. They are being done with partners. They have financing as well as construction going on. And then we sign a multi-year or multi-decade PPA. We're not using any of our prime land to build these uh, power stations. The power stations are all being land, built on land that is owned and controlled by the partners that are sending the PPAs with us. So we're not using our own capital and we're not using our own land to construct these facilities. But with that being said, guys, in almost all of our locations, so Greenpeace, you know, we just went through, guys, the last two weeks of, what did, what did Greta say? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it, it's, uh, so, guys, when you're talking about, you know, truly green energy or, guys, you know, or something called greenwashing, and so we've been 100% green since 2016, but we are not practitioners of greenwashing. And greenwashing is when you're getting wrecks, but you're getting wrecks, you know, the industry calls them dumped wrecks. And in, to kind of explain where that comes, let's say it's a, you, know, you have some type of geo plant that had a 15-year PPA that they had signed with the energy provider in Nebraska. It goes through that 15 years. At the end of that, um, the costs are too high, and so the energy company goes, I'm not doing it anymore. And then this thing still kind of runs a little bit and does its stuff. They have a hard time figuring out where to sell it, but they can peel out the wrecks and sell them separately. And they'll sell them 12 states away to a data center 12 states away. And that's done a lot. And that really, you guys, is, would fall under the greenwashing category from Greenpeace's definition. Greenpeace wants all of the energy that you're consuming to be new and local. Where you help, you know, where the PPA you signed, you helped create something that was new. You didn't 
try to resurrect something that was old and defunct and kind of pushed out the door, but you grab the wrecks on it. So that is something that's very unique for Switch. All of these things that we do sign PPAs on, they all have been brand new, a gigawatt of new solar, you know, here in Nevada moving forward, uh, hundreds of megawatts of batteries. But we sign that in partnership with the clients. We actually don't like to give up our land for that. We want to, our land is really valuable and unique for the data center side. So in most cases, we help them go find land close to us, use that financing tool. It doesn't eat up our CapEx. But in all cases, it's, it is new and local-based energy. Because, you, you know, if you can't really grab electrons from eight states away on a PPA that ended where they still have renewable recs there dumping. So I just want to, want to bring that up because that is important. The goal for our industry should be, especially with the tools we have, is to lean into helping create the new renewables for the grid, not trying to grab recs from old ones. Uh, yeah, Sean, number 11. Thanks for taking the questions here today. Um, so when you think about the competitive landscape, can you maybe just, how, how, how do you think about the competitive landscape, I guess, as, a, as point one? But uh, part of that is the capacity that is coming online uh, by, by competitors over the next few years. So you all certainly have the capacity. How, do you, how does that compare to um, your peers and those out there? And then just as a, as a second component to that, You've mentioned, hey, the J.P. Morgan Tier 4 facility, the FedEx Tier 4 facility. While, while FedEx is making the decision to not use that themselves, how is a facility like that potentially um, a component of that competition? Thanks. And so, guys, in, in terms of you know, competition, in some ways that's actually pretty easy to explain because data center resiliency is real. It, it, it's a real need. And when you look at the fact that I was talking about the enterprise data centers of the world closing, you saw the graphs going. There's 300 million, it went from 700 million square feet, it's going down to 300 million square feet, the clouds absorbing huge portions of that. But guys, you know, if the portion that's left at the end, 100 million square feet of it is going to be tier four. Those, all the tier four certified data centers in the world other than us, are enterprise data centers, where they just they went out and built them that way and went, no, I have to have this resiliency for this part. It, it's just that important that this never goes down. So, of course, in terms of where that can move, there's only us. And so then you go, well, what about, because no one builds them. There, there are no other Tier 4 data centers, or certainly even our new stuff, Tier 5 data centers, is can they come and compete against us on that? So let's say two years from now, um, you know, there's a company that was just bought by, I don't know, maybe a tower person that, that has really great access to, uh, you know, money at very low interest rates. Um, and they're going, well, why don't you go build Tier 4 and compete against Switch? Because that's, that's still in this market's super unique. In all fairness, it's the market that's least likely to be commoditized. Um, it's the market they're most comfortable paying high rates for. It's, it is the crown jewel mission critical part of these corporations, and they care about where that goes, and they're also not trying to just bottom feed on price. Tier 2 can go to the cloud. Tier 2 can go to any data center. Um, because most Tier 4 data centers in the world, as they're, once they're running, the numbers are 35 to 40 million a megawatt. And most of the big enterprise ones actually 
not a lot of people understand this, but it goes past 50 million a megawatt because they, they can't efficient, efficiently use them as one client. They come in and they build out a huge power system and they use it, but the last 27% never gets used. So then you really have to do the math on, well, it's actually that many megawatts that was used for this cost, so it really pushes the cost per megawatt, 35, 40, 50 million from an enterprise group trying to do that, the ones that have been certified. Because we have all these patents and because we've been manufacturing this stuff, those of you that did the tour today, um, you guys, who, you know, did everybody get to tour the air conditioner? So guys, that, you know, that air conditioner's been running 24 hours a day for 15 years. How old did it look? Someone wants to carbon date it? Brand new. Yeah. Guys, they look brand new. And there's a reason. When I, when I started to do our own designs for the data center, um, you know, spent time looking out at the market and realized, especially on the HVAC side, that those companies, they have engineers come out and they design something. And then at the end of that, they reverse engineer it so that the maintenance cycle ends up generating more money than you ever make when you sell the air conditioner. Because you have to come out and change the belts and change the filters and you know, they actually de-engineer components in almost every device in the world when you're selling it to create a maintenance environment separately. And so since we decided, hey, I'm going to design my own and make them, I designed them on a 44-year meantime between failure engineering concept, guys that actually I'd been doing some work with back, which is the nuclear motor industry for submarines and ships. And so, guys, when you have a nuclear submarine and you have to do work on the engine, they have to dry dock it for two years, cut it in half, take the nuclear motor out, work on it, put it in, and then put it back in the water. So when that's the need, you go, hey, I don't want to design a single component that fails. I don't want to, divide, I don't want to have a whole service industry created. The HVAC industry wants has this huge service industry where they make more money servicing HVAC units than they do selling them. And I don't mean just our industry, every single industry in the world. Every air conditioner in the world has a big service technician industry associated with it that they make more money. Services on automobiles, you know, all the dealerships now make more money servicing the automobile than selling the automobile. And so to do that, on purpose, they de-engineer pieces in it so that it fails more. So one of the things that we have that's really unique is because I started that 18 years ago, I go, that's the last thing in the world we would want for our own products, and we designed them very differently. Um, you know, almost every data center that's 20 years old now is hitting the end of life, and there's you know, most of the co-location industry tier two data centers, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them are end of life, and they, you know, some of the some of our peers, not you know, maybe not the two I mentioned because I think. They are more tier three data center groups, but the, you, know, you take a step past them and they have lots and lots and lots of old tier two data centers that have to be completely refreshed. All that CapEx has to go in. Of course, they're in old buildings that probably it's not the right place. They don't have enough scale, so now you're putting in the money where you can't get enough scale to efficiently run it. So I, I think from a competition standpoint, especially on the side we're focused on, in many ways there isn't any, and it's going to be really hard in the next 10 years for there to be some. You know, we, we, are, we are building tier five data centers for cheaper than those other two peers, our good peers, build tier three data centers in any city in the world. And so that, that's a huge advantage. Then, of course, you start to look at scale. We're buying 
more generators for that location than anywhere else. We're buying more air conditioners for that location than anywhere else. So I, I think the scale question kind of gets answered just by the product itself. It's, it is, from a quality standpoint, it is unique, and then also from a need standpoint, based on the cloud absorbing half of every, every ever enterprise data center, the next 10 years, it is the biggest need. And it needs to be tier four or tier five, and that's just us. You had a, one more part a little bit, did I? Well, just, so you, you mentioned, um, like, you used the J.P. Morgan example that, they, hey, they do have a tier four data center, and while they might be moving out a oh, significant yeah. portion of their cloud, what, what happens to that, to that data center? And so, guys, in most cases, it's also a unique thing, is they've also been there a long time, and so they're getting close to those depreciated asset modes, where you're going, oh, it's time to replace these Lieberts, it's time to replace these generators, it's time to replace these UPS systems. The batteries are, and it depends on the cycle, you know, and three to six years on batteries, so depending where the cycle is. They're also not very conducive, guys, to having co-location type connectivity. And so, in almost all the cases, they have a very diminished set of carrier needs than what we'd have in, you know, certainly in our industry or certainly, you know, Equinix, Corsite, Switch, we have 50 carriers at every environment and that matters. Four of the corporate data centers, not, not just all different groups, because um, we, we review those afterwards and go, huh, what, what are they going to do with this data center when you're done? The, um, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere because they want to get cheaper land, and so you, it was hard to even get two carriers to the building. Actually, two of the big ones that we closed for another company last year, they both had a single primary carrier that could do 10 gig, and the rest was a really... Like guys, four meg backup to the building, so they're not they're not made well to be multi-tenant data centers. In most cases, they'll exit that gear because it's old, and they'll those will be repurposed. I mean, I'm sure you know people somewhere will try to do something with some of them, but I would say just as a as an industry, the vast majority will be sunset. Okay. Um. Well, I think we want to get our East Coast virtual audience to dinner, and I know quite a few of you have, have uh, flights to catch, so we'll take one more question from the audience, and then we'll wrap up. Oh, oh. Uh, number 13. Hi. Uh, how are you doing? It's Tim Long at Barclays. Um, Rob, I was hoping you can talk a little bit about, we, we didn't get a ton of this in the presentation today, um, but you could, could you talk about some of the other services that, you know, you guys have been working on, thinking about storage, security. Um, there was talk about DDoS up there. Some of your competitors are starting to do bare metal servers, um, you know, firewalls, SDN, a lot of different things. Um, can you talk a little bit about the outlook for, you know, some, some other services that you might be offering over time and how you think them scale, see them scaling? Uh, in, addition, in addition to some of the, the core technologies you guys provide. Thanks. And so, guys, that's a, I'll, I'll kind of talk about that in two ways. So one is, you know, we have a storage product that we're working on, and I, over a 10-year time frame, I do believe that will roll out and be very unique. But it is highly differentiated. I, I think that data center providers want to be super careful competing against you know, bare metal storage, bare metal compute, because now you're directly competing against the cloud, and the cloud is a big client for all of them. And that's, so it's a slippery slope, and it's also really a commodity-based environment. Uh, the storage we're doing 
and I don't know how much of you guys know that, and that's those products will be rolling out as the campus's season here. Uh, probably that product, you know, starts a year from now, and then I think stays at every one of the campuses for all of time. But it, it's storage that doesn't compete with the cloud in any way because it is DCID 6.9 Tempest rated physical environment where that storage is located. And we're going to have a sector on every campus that does that. The NAP 12 building here on this sector is that. And what that is, guys, is that's the same really government rating for physically securing storage, but now offered to the public market. And so that has you know, the man traps to get into that space to even be in it. You have to have buddy system. You, you can only go in with two people. Even I can't go into those spaces. It's like the DCID 69 Tempest stuff that we do for the government. I, I don't know maybe how much you know everybody knows about our history, but the you know the first client I ever had was EGG and the Defense Department and you know those states. So almost all of our locations somewhere inside all our buildings have some. Tempest-rated rooms where we build that out. It's government-rated. They're boxed within a box. They're, we're already the most secure environment in the world, and then those are the secure environment that's inside that environment. But with that storage, they do something that is very unique that I think the enterprise world needs, and that is that all the gear that goes in, it never leaves. It goes through a grinder in the wall to ever be exited. I think there is a really big security gap in the cloud, in that you know, you, every enterprise uses it, you put your data in, they replicate it into three environments. Most of those data centers are two-tier rated. And if it's a tier two data center, it also, guys, doesn't generate enough money to have world-class security. You know, we don't have security. You guys toured here today. We have our own military on purpose to, to defend this stuff. But so in those Tempest rooms for storage, the gear comes in. It, lives through its life cycle, and there's literally grinders built in the wall. And our third-party security team, actually, when that becomes end of life, runs the gear through the grinder. We will never resell any of the storage to the black market. Sorry, gray market. That's the, the barely ethical gray market. No, I, so, but, but guys, almost everybody else does. The clouds all sell drives and different things into gray markets around the world. Um, just if I go talk to enterprise groups and go, hey, are, are you sure that those 80 drives that were sold afterwards, are you sure they were perfectly cleaned when they were done? It's just a guy coming over and plugging them in. Did he plug them all in? Did he put one in his tool bag? It's just cloud is not a very secure environment for some of those storage needs. No, it works really, really, really well for the vast majority of stuff. But for, again, what we do, the high enterprise stuff where I'm going, I can't ever lose that, that is our storage product. Highly differentiated. Uh, I've, I've talked to the clouds about all of it, and most of the cloud senior storage people are going, oh, yeah, we'll never build that, but uh, we have part of every client needs that, and we'll refer stuff to that. So those are the things that we're going to do. If we can do something highly differentiated that's still incorporated into the ecosystem, we're going to. If it's something, though, that does compete with the cloud, like bare metal, I, I I think that, that is, that's a really hard road several years from now. Their scale on buying drives, their scale on buying bare metal is just past what anybody will be able to match. And I really don't think you should probably get into a battle with your you know, with potential clients. And I think some of the other ones are maybe stepping on those toes a bit. The other side, too, guys, is connectivity. We, to make that understood, we don't have sites all over the world where we sell our own backbone to the client. 
Um, that also is something that I think is a little interesting because it competes against all the carriers. So we don't do that. When we sell backbones for FedEx's 80 locations, that isn't, we don't use our backbone from here to Atlanta and, and try to sell them that link. We still provision all those through Lumen, through Verizon. It's why, we have, it's why they're great partners in the co-op. Uh, I think some of those other tools that uh, some of the other data center providers have that they sell, it does compete with that. So we're very careful not to do with that. And then in terms of just offering the, all the holistic tools that need to be the village that will be the fourth cloud, you know, the thing that powers the fourth industrial revolution, that's really the alliance that Jonathan and I are working on where we're bringing partners into that environment, where they're highly integrated, hyper-converged partners, Dell, because everything Dell does going forward is going to be hyper-converged. We'll bring that along for every piece. Uh, NVIDIA on the GPU side, you know, the largest GPU engine in the world that are side up in Tahoe. That's really how we see those tools being valuable. And, and again, guys, all of these things are ancillary and you know, have the ability to help us you know, move revenue up. But I think you see the real focus, of course, is the fact that we can get to $20 billion with the world's only non-commoditized Tier 4 data centers. That still will be our primary focus. Okay, I think that's a wrap. Thank you all, both live and virtual, for joining us today. We, uh, we had a great time explaining uh, and sharing with you about our business, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you for coming, everybody. It's, uh, I appreciate everybody with COVID taking the time. Let's, let's hope COVID goes away. And then, and then Kobe, I, I, I spoke. If I, if it comes up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you all. And then, guys, as we finish up, Will, I want to make sure we really thank your branding team, guys. This is just everybody here filming today, all, all the technicians, all the switch employees that helped out. Obviously, you guys know the kind of work that went into this, and so just kudos. This has been phenomenal. Thank you.